3: Free speech to free minds. You're listening to The David Knight Show. As the clock strikes 13, it's Wednesday, the 21st of December, year of our Lord 2022, day 1014 of the emergency. And today is also the second year anniversary of our show. We're going to talk about that uh, later in the program. We really do appreciate your support. but We're going to talk today, uh, beginning with this. um, We have Zelensky coming to Congress with his wish list. Perhaps he'll sit on the lap of Nancy Pelosi. And we also have Congress putting out a list of all the things they thought was naughty about Trump. They're going to look at his uh, tax returns and make a list about all these naughty things they find there. Uh, Will it matter? Will it matter? What if they were even to convict him of something? Would that block him from running for president? Or would it turn him into a martyr? Well, we'll take a look at all those when we come back. Stay with us. Well, it was Ronald Reagan who said, I'd say that Congress spends money like a drunken sailor, but that would be an insult to drunken sailors. And so now they have a 4,155-page omnibus bill, $1.7 trillion. They've added billions more than even Biden asked for Ukraine. Uh, Zelensky will be coming to Congress as his acceptance speech. You love me. You really love me (laughs) today, I guess. Uh, he's been uh, you know, appearing at all the award shows. He was very upset that he didn't get to talk at FIFA. They demanded that he be able to uh, address people at FIFA, the World Cup. Uh, but uh, <laughs> they were very upset that he was not allowed to speak there. Uh, so, yeah, he's made the rounds of all these reward shows, and he's now getting his award, and uh <laughs> he's here to collect it. Maybe they give him a gold statuette or something. Anyway, $1.7 trillion. And of course, this has a lot of traditions in it. Not only are they spending money worse than a drunken sailor, but they are also in the Pelosi tradition dropping this 4,100 page and only 4,200 pages, uh, 4,200 page bill just before they go on, on uh, recess for Christmas. Not going to have any delays on that and uh it's very much like the tradition of the federal reserve creation you know waiting till a lot of people have left and then you know running this thing through and getting it passed with the people who remained in town a lot of deception but it's also the the pelosi tradition uh we have to pass the bill to find out what's in it we know some of the things that are in this bill but uh, we won't know most of them for a while and i stop and think about this you know i do a lot of reading in preparation for the show, I go through 300 to 500 pages of news every day. After I go through the websites to pick the articles and I have to read them <laughs> all the way. And, um, you know, some of them I throw out, some of them I, I continue on with. So, you know, if I'm looking at this, if I didn't like, you know, 500 pages a day, which is the upper limit, um, would take me a week <laughs> to go through this thing. And there's a lot of gotchas in these legal documents. And here are some of them that stand out like a sore thumb. Like they can't really hide $45 billion in military and economic aid for Ukraine. Biden had asked for 37, and they just threw in another 8 billion. No, because a billion here, a billion there, who, who cares about that anymore, right? Uh, so, um, uh, and $47 billion for the NIH, the National Institutes of Health where Fauci is, where they do the puppy experiments, where they do the uh, purchasing of baby parts so they can create transhumanist mice, where they do gain-of-function research in other places and, uh, you know, the, the biological weapons program. Do we really need $47 billion for National Institute of Health and $45 billion to try to push us into world war? I mean, NIH went to war with us, the COVID war, so they're being handsomely rewarded. I guess you know, forty-five billion dollars is a new thirty pieces of silver, right? We, we and you—it's <laughs> like the mouse that roared. Remember that movie, Peter Sellers? This poor country. What are we going to do? We we don't have any money. I know what we'll do. We'll declare war on the United States and then surrender, and they will, you know, give us <laughs> massive amounts of money. And so they uh, they had come in a ship. Uh, wearing medieval armor and <laughs> try to get people to notice them well we noticed what was done to us when the nih went to war with us and we better be paying attention as to what is happening as Zelensky is doing everything he can to push us into a world war uh yeah you know, i imagine he's like i said he's going to come here and sit on uh, santa's lap it's like uh, well what do you want for christmas little man uh, i want a nuclear war <laughs> Shut up. You'll put your eye out on ours as well. Uh, So (laughs) what do we get out of this? Well, uh, I don't see anything in terms of any uh, reforms tied into this. Senator Josh Hawley has pushed to have a ban on TikTok on government devices included in this omnibus bill. That's it. That's it for our side. (laughs) Um. Before we ban TikTok on government devices, could we ban the DHS and the FBI and the CIA and the NSA from our phones? Would that be a good thing to do, you think? How about maybe we could ban the FBI, ban the FDA, ban the NIH, the CDC, and the Fed, any of this stuff, nothing. Zero, zip, nada. Republicans are not going to change anything. They consolidate the gains of the Democrats. That's the whole thing about conservatism. Is that it's just a matter of time. Once something, no matter how bad, the thing is, that liberals put in, after it has been there for a while, it's completely legitimate, and the the Republicans and the conservatives will fight to keep it. That's their problem. That's our problem, frankly. Uh, anyway, so Zelensky is going to get his uh, forty-five billion dollars from. Santa and Congress today, as he speaks to them, the rest of the world is just trying to get a lump of coal house. Conservatives swiftly came out against the omnibus spending bill. That's one thing you can get Republicans to push back against spending a lot of money, you know, I I'm okay with, uh, you know, $500 billion, but you get up there around a trillion and everything. I, we got to say something about that. <laughs> That's Eric Durson was, uh, doing that satirically. Oh, you got a million dollars here and a million dollars pretty soon. You know, you're, you're talking about real money, you know, after you spend a billion here and a billion there anyway. The lawmakers said, we are obliged. They, they sent a letter to uh, the Senate warning Senate Republicans to push back on this. Said, we are obliged to inform you that if any omnibus passes in the remaining days of this Congress, we will oppose and whip opposition to any legislative priority of those senators who vote for this bill, including the leader, that would be you, Mitch. So what the Republicans are promising to do, <clears throat> House conservatives—they found thirteen of them in the House. <laughs> they say they—they they say they have thirteen conservatives. The rest of them won't even call themselves conservatives uh, or part of the Freedom Caucus. And let me tell you, those thirteen guys. Are not completely reliable either, as uh, <laughs> any values that you would want, or any freedom or constitution. Uh, so that's it. I mean, you know, out of, out of thirteen people, I'm I'm uh, for freedom and I'm for limited government and I'm conservative. The rest of the people, yeah, shut up. We don't we don't want you here. So in the Senate, uh, Mike Lee says he he wrote uh, rhetorically. He said this bill has been written in large measure by two retiring senators one republican one democrat why should we move heaven and earth trying to force their priorities on the very people they keep in the dark all according to two senators contrived manipulated timeline well they contrived to manipulate that timeline so they could uh, weaponize it so the uh, Ukrainian aid, this $45 billion, again, Biden asked for 37. They said, no, we'll give you 45. Um, It'll bring the total U.S. spending on the war to about $112 billion. Now, that's over a nine-month period. So we're on pace to give Ukraine about $150 billion. And I've talked about this chart. Let me show you this chart. This is coming from? the world bank, the world bank. And let's take a look. This is Ukraine's gross domestic product for going back to 2012. So 10 years of it. Okay. (coughs) Excuse me. If you uh, look at 2012, 183 billion, 2013, 190 billion. We're on course to give them $150 billion this year. For one year, because we're nine months, you know, nine months through and we're up to 112. So at that pace, we're going to give them essentially what their gross domestic product has been. But look at what happened in 2014. All of a sudden, you know, they had 183, 190. Then all of a sudden in 2014, their gross domestic product drops to 133. Well, that's pretty big. What was that? Well, that was when you had the Democrat Party and Obama administration and NATO engineer this coup. And that was when the civil war began in Ukraine. And it it does um, uh, amazing things to your gross domestic product when you go to war, especially when you go to civil war and you start bombing civilians, as they did in the Donbass and elsewhere, and kept that up. so. You know, that wasn't the entire year the war wasn't going on. So it was 133. The next year, it drops all the way down to 91. They lost more than half of their gross domestic product because of that war. So 2015, the war is the entire year. Their gross domestic product, which had been up around 180 to 190, dropped to 91. The next year, 2016, 93 billion. They start to gradually recover by 2017, 112 billion. I don't know if that is counting now some American aid that is coming in. Uh, then in 2018 they get up to 130, still not anywhere close to where they were. Uh, 153 in 2019 and 2020, 156, and then all of a sudden, the year before this war breaks out 2021, um, where you have, um, you know, again, that the, the uh, Putin did not invade until late February. And yet they had said when they got into office in 2019, that, um, you know, they were going to come in, they were going to do peace. Restovich who was with Zelensky, who was head of the peace talks, the Ukrainian TV asked him, you know, what's the prospect for peace? He said, none. It's going to get worse. Oh, no. Yes, we'll be at war with Russia in 2022. He said that in 2019. So he was planning a war. The Zelensky administration was planning a war. They'd been told by NATO. He said, the good thing is, yeah, the entire country is going to be destroyed, but the good thing is, we will get into NATO. So they'd planned this, and all of a sudden, their gross domestic product, which had been $150 billion, Jumps to two hundred billion dollars. The year before, you know, leading up to this, but well, leading up to the year that they predicted this was going to happen. Do you find that suspicious? Okay, round two. Name something that's
0: not boring.
4: A laundry. Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh?
0: Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino.
3: So he's going, to be in, uh, he's going to be in Congress, coming in person. He doesn't usually go places in person. He zooms in and pontificates from a big monitor to all these award shows. But this is such a big award that he's going to come in. I mean, you know, the, the dollar figures are escalating. It wasn't that long ago that when you combine the military and the economic aid were $60 billion. Now they're going to pile on another $45 billion. So it's escalating his appearance on Capitol Hill would mark the first time since February 24th, Russian invasion that he has left Ukraine first time, but Hey, you know, you can coax him out of hiding if you give him enough money. So if he sits on Santa's lap in the Congress and he asks for the U S to close the skies, quote unquote, that'd be tantamount to imposing a no-fly zone, which we've all talked about. He's been asking for that matter of fact, he wants us to uh, get into a nuclear war, to teach the Russians a lesson. This this guy is just amazing. And um, so if if you create a no-fly zone, of course, you're going to have to enforce that, as some of the saner people have pointed out. That means that you're going to have to confront and shoot down Russians if they uh, disobey your orders. And Russia has said, yeah, we're right up to the brink of a direct confrontation between the U.S. and Russia. Zelensky's March address, when he talked to um, Congress before, was laced with American patriotic references from Pearl Harbor to memories of 9-11 and to Martin Luther King Jr. He even threw in Mount Rushmore. He said, uh, this attack is an attack on basic human values. What human values would those be? Oh, well, you know, we had the uh, British... Uh, intelligence officials and the American intelligence officials and British generals and all of them saying our our values are the rainbow values of the LGBT coalition. So I guess that's it, right? Basic human values. That's uh, so what the Russian, the uh, the uh, Western leaders say. Uh, it's it's just amazing to look at. I, I think some basic human values is that you don't drop shells on your own citizens. You don't. Uh, you don't start shelling a city simply because they assert that they have a right to self-governance. That's what Zelensky did. I think basic human rights is that you don't lock up your political opponents when you win. I think basic human rights are that you don't shut down churches. You don't create your own church, as he did in 2019. He created a spinoff from the Eastern Orthodox Church because it's so heavily the Eastern Orthodox Church is so heavily tied to a Russian patriarch there in Ukraine. So, for political purposes, he created a separate church that's been percolating along, and now he is confiscating assets from people in that church, shutting them down, declaring them to be terrorists if they attend that church. We're talking about basic human liberties shutting down the press, arresting people in the press, arresting his opponents, shutting down free speech, shutting down the free exercise of religion. Those are basic human rights, but he will be applauded when he comes to Congress by Republicans and Democrats, because they've been doing that to you for the last uh, two years, especially, but even before that they've been warming up for this for a long time, but for the last two years, they've been doing that to us. So why wouldn't they applaud Zelensky? So Wednesday's new in-person appearance will likely include themes of suffering during Christmas. Uh, He is, uh, has already alleged uh, that Russia is trying to steal Christmas. He's painting Putin as a Grinch. And, um, you know, Ukraine is just a little Whoville, as in, I guess, uh, the World Health Organization. Uh, but maybe he's going to paint a picture of something like this for Congress.
4: Oh, uh, wait, shot of cars, got quick! look, incoming!
1: Majors, the six million dollar band. Santa, is there a back way out of this place? Of course there is, Lee. But this is one Santa that's going out the front door. It don't matter a hill of beans what happens to me. The world couldn't afford it if anything happened to you. Now you stay put. Oh, that's very nice of you, Lee. And Lee, you're being a real good boy this year. Yes, you sure have. Seven o'clock, Psycho C, Santa's Workshop. Need this, and only Lee Majors can stop them.
3: Or Zelensky. (laughs) Yeah, maybe he'll show that. (laughs) You know what? I'm I'm here to ask for Lee Majors. (laughs) We need him right now. Uh, No, actually, his stuff is getting even more satirical. Zelensky says this Christmas, Ukrainian children are asking for air defense systems. That's right. You know, NORAD tracks Santa all the time, right? You know, what NORAD can't track are the planes on 9-11, but they can track Santa every year. That's for sure. Uh, so <laughs> he's telling everybody that, you know, the kids are uh, not actually, they're, they're looking for that lump of coal for real now. Uh, retiring Senator Richard Shelby is one of these two retiring senators that um, Mike Lee was talking about. He said this, this whole omnibus bill, this pork bill, was written by two retiring senators forcing a deadline on us. $656 million worth of earmarks have been put into this $1.7 trillion omnibus. That's about a third of it. And uh, about a third of this bill is earmarks that have been put in by this retiring senator. Richard Shelby, a Republican, a Republican. Uh, Shelby, as a longtime Senate Republican appropriations leader, has had a particularly outsized influence in the drafting of the gargantuan legislation. Uh, Perhaps this is his golden parachute, right? As I've said before, look, you can't get a better return on investment than an American politician. Yeah. You, you, (laughs) these guys can give you several thousand percent return on investment. I mean, look at what Trump did for the pharmaceutical companies, for example. Uh, anyway, $13 million for a (laughs) municipal airport runway, $26 million for the Tuscaloosa. That's in Abbeville, uh, where he is, uh, Alabama. Tuscaloosa national airport runway extension, $26 million, hundred million dollars for the Woolsey Finnell bridge, $200 million for the Alabama state port authority, $50 million for evolving loan fund for, to benefit Alabama, 35 million for the Marion military Institute, 45 million for the university of Alabama, Tuscaloosa. You get the idea, right? Um, one of these things, <laughs> just uh, the, uh, 22.6 2. million for deepening the Tom Bigby waterway. Yeah, there's a song, there's an old uh, folk song, the Tom Bigby waltz. I, that's, uh, I, I discovered that a couple of years ago. I, I really liked that old song, and I thought that was such an unusual name, Tom Bigby. I mean, it's not Tom, the first name, and Bigby, the last. It's all one name. It's like, what is that about? Anyway, you look at this, and one-third of the spending in this, Ridiculous bill is going to Alabama because it's, you know, Alabama, 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 Alabama. This goes on for pages here. <laughs> these are all millions of dollars, every one of these things. It's kind of like a theme that's running throughout it. And when you stop and think about it, it wasn't that many years ago that the entire military budget was $656 million, right? I'm sorry, a billion dollars. Um, it is, uh, yeah, it is pretty amazing. I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, I, I do this all the time. 656 million, it's not a third of the thing, because that's trillion. We're talking about billions. See, even I can't keep these things straight. It doesn't make any difference. So 656 million, the Pentagon budget, 656 billion a couple of years ago. They just upped it as well. They gave more money to Biden than uh, he had asked for. So now they're over 800 billion. That's with a B. Uh, so, uh, Shelby put a bunch of stuff in there anyway, you know, 656 million is nothing to sneeze at, even though it ain't 656 billion. But, um, you know, when I started looking at these things, hundred million for this and 200 million for that 50 million, I thought, well, okay, he's going to get up to a billion, but then the numbers start to get smaller. Although he does have 76 million for an Alabama school of medicine and 50 million for the university of Alabama, Tuscaloosa for an endowment to support recruitment and retention of exceptional faculty. I bet you could probably support and recruit a lot of people with $50 million. Anyway, uh, that's how they get us, right? We don't even think anymore. Million, billion, trillion, whatever. These numbers are so astronomical you can't keep track of them, especially the billion, do- uh, the trillion-dollar stuff. As I was saying, you know, when, when Trump dropped his $3.7 trillion, trying to get your head around that. You know, you have to come up with these analogies and I said, you know, even if you take newly printed 100 dollar bills and you stack them uh, you know, that this is how far a 3 trillion dollars gets you to the moon. It gets you there. Uh, I think it was it was 1 dollar bills that were stacked, but uh, it gets you to the moon and back. That's how much uh 3.7 trillion dollars was. Anyway, McCarthy is uh joining Excuse me joining the threat to block legislation he's one of these guys who is now um <laughs> i guess you could call mccarthy a trans conservative he is not actually a conservative but he identifies as one for the purpose of the speaker election and so now he has uh, jumped in to this because the conservatives are pushing andy biggs um in opposition to him as a speaker of the house and they're worried, you know, because the Democrats could play some games, I guess, and uh, with uh, you know, because they get to vote on who the Speaker is as well. The speaker is not automatically the uh, coming from the party that is there, and um, it doesn't even have to be somebody that is in uh, Congress at the time, as some people pointed out. Geesebusters, geesebusters! Thank you very much for the tip. You know, every time I I mention that and I get the transcript, it'll always. Um, say ghostbusters, ghostbusters. <laughs> uh, but, uh, we know what that is. Uh, he helps people to, um, make sure that if they've got geese that are becoming a nuisance, uh, he makes sure they mosey on somewhere else. So, uh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. So McCarthy says the omnibus gives up the funding leverage that we used to lift the vaccine mandate and the oil export ban. They're going to take away our opportunity to secure the border, to become energy independent, because when those appropriation bills get passed, remember what's happening here. Leahy and Shelby are writing it Two senators who won't be there in 15 days. Uh, Shelby, the one from Alabama, I just talked about Patrick Leahy is retiring as well. He's a Democrat. We now have a stronger hand that we can play with the Senate and with the administration, because we will have the gavel do a short term CR, put it into continuing resolution. Put it into the end of January, end of February. We're willing to go forward. Larry, one of the best things we were able to do in the country was when it was divided to lift the ban on selling our oil and gas outside of America. And you know when we did that? We did that in the appropriation process when Obama was president. We were able to negotiate. We can do the same thing now. So what he's saying is no hurry on this. We don't have to get this done before the Christmas break. We can do a continuing resolution. We can come back later, and we need to not uh, give up on all this stuff because that really is about their only leverage that they have. Uh, so, um, there's a lot of, uh, pushback from conservatives also from McCarthy who are trying to do this. So it may not happen, but you notice, um, I don't think anybody is even speaking out against Zelensky. And if you watch him speak, they're going to pan the camera around and he's going to get a standing ovation from the Republicans, not just from the Democrats. Uh, so, uh, reason ask, why does funding the government take $1.7 trillion and and 4,000 pages? Is that a rhetorical question? <laughs> when we would ask for information from the government, they would never give us specifically what we wanted. They would just say, well, you know, here's the budget. Um, so, you know, go fish. You would get this massive thing, uh, in a paper format, not searchable by computer. And uh, it's up to you to go through that and try to figure out what is happening. And uh, one of the most effective ways that you can hide a needle is in a haystack, isn't it?
4: It
0: is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. void, reporting prohibited by loss. Terms and conditions 18.
2: With lucky land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today.
3: To the David Knight Show. Rhode Island has passed a ban on high capacity firearm magazines. And now they have uh, some people, a gun store and some uh, gun owners, have taken this to court. And a federal judge has now decided that it is constitutional to do that. This is judicial supremacy, micromanaging, if you will, infringing is the way they put it. You know, they didn't have, when they wrote the Constitution, they didn't say micromanage, but they talked about infringement, and really that is a better description. They're, mic- they're coming in, the devil is in the details, and so is the nullification of the Second Amendment in the details. They used the term infringement because they understood that there wasn't going to be uh, one day that uh, some tyrant in government or some legislative body would just come out and say, all right, that's it. We're taking all the guns. They realized it was going to be a gradual process. They would cut it off slice by slice. And when you talk about infringement, you're talking about around the border, right? And so uh, the way I like to think of it is somebody gradually encroaching on your property rights by moving the fence that uh, was dividing your property in theirs, they gradually move that fence onto your land and then leave it there to establish a principle. And you're okay, you leave it there, and then the next, <laughs> next year you come back and they've moved it again. And it's a gradual process. Death by a thousand cuts instead of just, you know, passing along saying, that's it. And, and they used that term, I, and I always thought that it was significant that they would say, when they're talking about the First Amendment, they said, Congress will make no law abridging this. So they figured, you know, well, with the with, um, First Amendment, they can just come in and say, okay, you can't, uh, that speech is hateful. It's misinformation, it's disinformation, it's malinformation. Uh, we're going to shut that down. We're going to shut down that hateful church because we hate their beliefs and that type of thing. That type of stuff can just be done by legislative fiat. But if you have an armed population, you're going to have to disarm them gradually. You're not going to come out one day and just say, I'm taking your guns. It's like, okay, well, come and take it. So it's going to be a gradual process, and this is what this is. So this federal judge in Rhode Island upheld a newly enacted state law banning the possession of large-capacity magazines that carry more than 10 rounds of ammunition. And it's amazing what this guy said. If ever there was an example of how we are being ruled By political appointees who know nothing and care nothing about the Constitution. They know nothing about what they're regulating and they know nothing about the Constitution. A single U.S. District Court Chief Judge, John J. McConnell Jr., uh, says basically that the Second Amendment doesn't mean what it says. And why would we be surprised about that? If liberals can redefine woman and vaccine and everything else that they want to redefine, right? But they can redefine something as basic as what is a woman. Do you think they can redefine what is infringement? You know, what is a militia, all these other things. They can redefine anything, and that's the way they do it. So the judge also said that allowing the law to be enforced was in the public's interest. Well, that's none of his concern. Public interest would be something that you as a policymaker and a lawmaker would be interested in, but a judge shouldn't care about that unless he's legislating from the bench. Public interest, you have one job, judge, and that is to look at this and see if it's legal or not. It not, doesn't matter if it's in the public's interest. <clears throat> you know, There are uh, clear lines that are drawn in the Constitution. So where did this guy come from? I went back and looked at his background. Uh, For years, he was an attorney in private practice. He was part of a big law firm that was part of a big lawsuit against big tobacco. And so he put together, uh, you know, uh, research for them and did stuff like that. He wasn't the only attorney. There's a lot of attorneys working on that. And it was a 46-state lawsuit. And so he worked on that for a number of years. Then he became treasurer of the Rhode Island Democrat State Committee for 14 years. Political, political. Then he became a campaign chair for a big candidate, mayor of a big city there in Rhode Island. Political. Then he got on the board of directors for Planned Parenthood. So he said, you understand, he doesn't have a problem with murder. He's got a problem with guns. He was on the board of directors of Planned Parenthood. How many people are killed with guns in Rhode Island versus killed with Planned Parenthood clinics? So it's it's guns and it's self-defense that he has a problem with. Murdering innocent people, that's good. I'll I'll help with that. So he was appointed by Obama, but how did he get appointed by Obama? Well, you know, he's in, again, private practice. He's a treasurer of the Democrat State Committee. He's on the board of directors for Planned Parenthood. He helps Democrats as their campaign chair and things like that. And so then he decides, since he's been a private lawyer before, I'd like to be a judge. I'd like to be a district court judge, a federal district court judge. So in Rhode Island, teeny tiny state that still has two senators, they got as many senators as California or Texas. So he goes to those two senators and he writes a letter to the two of them after the vacancy appeared, uh, one guy retired. So he writes a letter to them and says, I'd like to be on the district court. And these two senators from this small town, from this small pond, where this guy is a big fish, um, uh, send that on to Obama and he becomes a district court judge who now says stuff like this. Uh, uh, the, uh, well, I'll give you his comment here. Um, he says, um, victims of mass shooting are not chosen randomly, but because of what they represent to a particular person with a gun and a lot of ammunition. <laughs> he also said that the plaintiffs had failed to show that magazines represented arms. What does he think they represent, uh, as stated in the Second Amendment, um, and he, or that they'd not present uh, credible evidence establishing that magazines are a weapon of self-defense? Well, here's the thing, Judge. In case you haven't noticed, if you don't have any bullets in your gun, it's a club. Uh, we don't want to have a situation like Davy Crockett at the Alamo. You know, he had one shot, and after he shot that, he had to use it as a club. Right? Seeing the pictures, uh, people uh, Davy Crockett swinging his, his gun. Um, no, if you don't have bullets, you don't have a gun. It's an essential part of the gun. Everybody knows that that's how dishonest and politicized, um, and specious his arguments are. And listen to this, this is another thing he says. He also wrote that large capacity magazines can easily be used to convert handguns into semi-automatic weapons capable of rapid fire. He doesn't realize that most handguns are semi-automatic. What is that? He doesn't even know what that term means. He has no idea what semi-automatic means. Semi-automatic weapons means that it fires every time you pull the trigger. Uh, You had um, Western six-shooters that were semi-automatic, right? Um, And of course, you know, before that, they did have some revolvers that were, um, you know, you had to manually cock the hammer and then you could pull the trigger to release it. Then you'd manually cock the hammer again. So you'd load it up with six bullets and you'd have to pull the hammer back. It's probably one of the reasons you see people doing the fanning, you know, when they pull it back and just hold the trigger down and pull the hammer back and, uh, let it release so they can do that's rapid fire. I mean, that's like a bump stock or something that ought to be outlawed. You know, they ought to ban anybody depicting any of these Western gunslingers who are doing a, you know, fanning the gun, you know, <laughs> wait a minute. He's got a, he's got a, a hand fan here. We got to stop this hand fan thing. We got to make that illegal. Forget about what he's shooting at. And of course, uh, going back, I think one of the best, um, best books I saw on guns and gun control um, was uh, The Highwaymen, The Gunslinger, and The Vigilante or something like that. And, and it talked about how in the Old West, uh, as much as Hollywood has distorted this and glorified the violence of the Old West, it was far more peaceful than the big cities of today. And you did have the gunfighters that would go down the street and stuff like that, but for the most part, you know, they weren't going around and shooting up a church or something, right? They were shooting each other and they kept that pretty much uh, localized. And, um, and you had the posse that would join with the sheriff and his deputies, hunt down somebody that had done something. So, um, there was, there were immediate consequences for people who misused their gun because everybody else had a gun. And there were a few people like, highwaymen, highway robbers, and um, gunslingers who had misuse that. And um, they were dealt with, uh, in many cases, by the, the, the other people who had guns. So he says, um, the magazine is not a weapon of self-defense. It is essentially a part of the weapon. It's like, you know, well, you can't have um, bullets, it's not a gun. This reminds me very much of the kinds of prevarications that we had coming out of Washington, D.C. when they lost the Heller case. If you remember that case, that was a Washington, D.C. police officer who uh, wanted to be able to carry a gun when he was off duty. And I said, no, only when you're on duty, only when you're wearing a a uniform, and and you got to keep this thing stored. And so he took that to court, and it was a major defeat for the gun controllers, because the, the court said, no, it says that you can keep and bear arms. That means you can carry them. And besides this guy is a police officer. You vetted him and you're arming him during regular hours. But now when he's not on duty, you say he can't be trusted with a gun. And, and it's that kind of specious argument that, you know, well, <clears throat> you know, um, uh, you can you can keep a gun, but you can't carry a gun, even if you're a cop. That's the kind of nonsense this guy's coming up with. Oh yeah, well, no, we we can regulate the magazines because they're not a part of the gun. And the gun store said, uh, well, and the the plaintiffs said, well, the reality is is that um, we have a lot of weapons that cannot be modified if if you remove this. Uh, because of production for other reasons, you got a lot of guns that cannot be modified for use with a smaller capacity magazine. And so the firearms dealer, big bear hunting and fishing supply said that a large capacity magazines make up a substantial amount of their inventory. You're just confiscating our guns essentially. And they are because if you have these high capacity magazines, that's going to be treated as a felony. Uh, this judge is just an ignorant political hack. He can't even come up with some reasons to defend this. Other things are in the law, <clears throat> they've changed the age of purchasing firearms or ammunition in Rhode Island from 18 to 21. But they make exceptions for police and other law enforcement persons. So you can be 18 years old cop, and you're okay. Yeah, it's kind of like the D.C. Heller thing. They also have prohibited the open carrying of any loaded rifle or shotgun in public but it's primarily this high-capacity magazine that was at the center of it because now people are going to be, quote, forced, as said the plaintiffs, we're going to be forced to dispose of privately owned, legally acquired, standard capacity magazines by December the 18th without receiving any compensation or rights, without any conditions or of continued ownership to keep their lawfully acquired property. And if you don't do that, say if you don't comply with this and dispose of your lawfully acquired property protected under the constitution specifically uh you can now be convicted of a felony and potentially face five years of incarceration so you know as they pointed out uh, these these uh guns are now out of production many of them and uh, so the manufacturers are not going to go back and retrofit these things so we can even use them but the absurdity at the center of it is the idea that the uh, the bullets are not part of the gun. Not part of a firearm, I should say. Of course, they're not part of the gun. They go down that way. <laughs> they go down range. Uh, so he says, true. Uh, these victims are, are singled out because people have a high-capacity magazine, he says. Uh, Yes, they are random in the fact that their identities are usually not known to the shooter. But in actuality, the victims have not been chosen randomly, says this Democrat politician that got appointed as a federal district judge. He said they've been chosen because they're attending a synagogue in Pittsburgh or a church in Sutherland Springs. They've been chosen because they're in a place where there's nobody who's armed to defend them. Unlike these politicians and others. Ben Thijs, thank you very much for the tip on Rockfin. I appreciate that. That's a new name I haven't seen before. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Uh, So uh, (laughs) it never ends. We're going to take a quick break and uh, we'll be right back with an update. Uh, We have somebody else commenting on the JFK assassination. This is some guy who he also says that he knows. So.
2: No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
3: Well, yeah, and we got to go with expert testimony. We'll be right back. This is the David Knight show. I saw this <laughs> it's on the wall street journal. And this is an op-ed piece by a guy named Paul Roderick Gregory. He's written a book about the JFK assassination. He said, as a child, he knew Lee Harvey Oswald. And, um, and he knows that he was a lone shooter because he knew him. <laughs> This is the kind of the counter to uh, Tucker Carlson, who for sixty years couldn't look at the physical evidence and <laughs> come to a deductive reasoning about this. Well, I know that's not possible. I know that magic bullet thing's not possible, and we got the zapooter film. I'm not gonna pay attention to any of the evidence because I've got expert testimony. And the thing that changed Tucker Carlson's mind is he gets a call from somebody who says, "I've looked at the hidden papers, and yes, they did kill him." Oh well, now I've got an expert who tells me. And so this guy <clears throat> is the countering expert. If you're un- incapable of doing critical thinking and looking at evidence, uh, then you just have to go on competing testimony from quote unquote experts. This guy says, uh, you know, when the Warren report came out in 1964, 80% of the people agreed that Oswald acted alone. Today, Uh, more than 60% don't believe Oswald acted alone or let's put it a different way. It's gone from, according to him, 80% of the people believing that Oswald acted alone to 40% of the people believing that from 80 to 40, I find that hard to believe. Maybe it's just where I was. You know, I, I gotta say my, my family, unlike, you know, Oliver Stone, some of the people who have, uh um, investigated the JFK assassination. We were not fans of JFK. Uh, my parents were uh, conservative. Um, they, um, you know, only bumper sticker my dad ever had on his car <laughs> was for, for Barry Goldwater. Um, <laughs> cause he was the only one that was anywhere you know, close to conservative and libertarian enough for him. Uh, but, um, you know, we were not happy with JFK's policies. We were not happy living in Florida with the Cuban missile crisis. We saw it as vacillation and weakness. Uh, Now in different perspective, we understand the pressure that he was under from the CIA, but we didn't have that understanding at that point in time. We just saw it as somebody, you know, when I was going to school in second grade, They were telling us, you better take a change of clothes. Now, this is a school that I walked to that was only about a mile away. Everybody bring a change of clothes because, you know, there might be a nuclear attack and you won't have time to get home and stuff. It's like, what? We all had to bring clothes and put them, you know, have extra set of clothes because there might be a nuclear attack. Again, total nonsense, like the duck and cover stuff, but it does uh, put the fear of God in you, you know, and uh, the fear of, of governments who think that they're God. And so we're looking at this and it's like, well, you know, maybe we just, uh, you know, kind of breathed the sigh of relief. This guy has been kind of dangerous in office. Uh, little did we realize the bigger things that were happening behind the scenes, but nobody believed that this was Oswald, especially, you know, the next day or so you could see him get shot by Jack Ruby. Uh, that happened around Thanksgiving. And I remember all of my family, you know, coming in for Thanksgiving. And all the adults, I'm sitting there, I'm like three, uh, third grade, and uh, all the adults are talking about their conspiracy theories. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's something else going on here, you know? Right? This, uh, this guy was killed to shut him up. So that means there's more than one person involved. It's just that simple. Uh, even before you had the magic bullet theory that was put out there by Arlen Specter, and he turned that into a very lucrative career as a senator, uh, even before you had the Zapruder film, even before you had eyewitness testimony that they heard gunshots from over there, not from back there, and all the rest of this stuff. I mean, you know, just the fact that he's taken out by Jack Ruby, known mob, mob ties and uh, dying of cancer and all this rest of this stuff. Uh, so nobody that I knew, uh, none of the adults that I knew, even though they didn't like Kennedy's policies, nobody believed That, uh, that was a lone shooter situation. But he says, this guy says, my father was native Russian speaker. He taught the language at a public library in Fort Worth, Texas. Oswald wanted a certificate of fluency in Russian. And he invited my father and me to his brother's house. There we met his wife, Marina, for whom my father translated after the assassination. Moscow and some American leftists accused my father of mistranslating her in order to shift The blame to lee harvey oswald lee's brother identified me as lee and marina's only friend during their stay in fort worth you know i I remember remember there's a trip that karen and i took several years ago and it was stephen king's um uh, the name of the book was the date of the assassination i think they write it out as 11 63 or something like that it was a very he's stephen king is a very good writer but it was total disinformation He painted a great picture, a great narrative, and what we enjoyed about it was painting a great picture of what America was like in 1963. It was a time travel thing, right? This guy's got a portal where he can go back in time. And, you know, he witnesses, uh, he tries to stop Lee Harvey Oswald from doing the assassination. He gets involved in all that. But, you know, Stephen King is, is shilling is this lone shooter thing. It kind of ruined the novel, but we still enjoyed the uh, detailed period piece because uh, Stephen King is older than we are. He remembers it better than we do, but it was a, uh, it was an interesting time. And, and it was really more about that, uh, the, the portrait that he paints of, of the time rather than the, disinformation propaganda that he put out there about the assassination. Stephen but this guy, King
0: is great with atmosphere, but his yeah. characters are all
3: unlikable dweebs because he's an unlikable dweeb. That's right. That's right. And uh, we made the mistake, because I don't read Stephen King stuff, right? We made the mistake after we we did enjoy it, and I said, well, you know, even though the whole, <laughs> whole uh, Lee Harvey Oswald stuff was a bunch of pooey, uh, it was a good... So I said, we had Audible at the time. And I said, let's, let's get some more Stephen King books for our next trip. We got it. And we put one after the other one. You talk about a dark, satanic, obsessed individual. I mean, (laughs) Stephen King is so dark. We just like, Oh, let's turn that off. We'll try the next one. And it's like, Oh, after about a couple of three of them, we gave up on Stephen King. Anyway, going back to this guy, uh, he was genetically incapable. He said of being a leader or a follower. That's it. See, he knows this guy, and he knows his personality, so he knows that he must have done it. So you have to have some physical evidence. A lot of people have been framed for murder for people jumping to conclusion without any physical evidence. Well, I know that guy did it. I can just see it in his eyes. Well, you better prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt. You got any proof of this? No, you don't. Again, going back to to 9-11, Karen has a cousin who was in one of the towers on 9-11, working in New York. And <clears throat> she got out, and she's just absolutely convinced that the government's narrative is true. They can't convince her. I was there, she said. I was there. I said, well, maybe you can't see the forest for the trees. You have, it has to, nothing to do with you getting out of the building before it collapsed. That has nothing to do with it. it, it you know, look at the circumstances around this. You know, the planes at NORAD being called away and all, Yeah, you know, every, just on and on and on, uh, the physical evidence, the engineering evidence, all the rest of this stuff. I mean, it has nothing to do with you being in the plane. It has nothing to do with this guy having known personally, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald and his wife over a number of years and the brother it has nothing to do with that. Even if, uh, his wife believed that he was a lone shooter, that doesn't make it true. And there's a lot of evidence to contradict that story, to show that it is not possible. Again, what is deductive reasoning? Well, as uh, Arthur Conan Doyle had Sherlock Holmes say, "It's you know when you rule out the impossible, whatever is left, no matter how improbable, is the truth." You just start ruling out possibilities. That means, that as a detective, you're going to start with a bunch of conspiracy. You're going to start with a bunch of theories about what happened. Many of those are going to involve conspiracies. Most crimes are not committed by a single person. Just take a look at what the FBI does when they charge people. That's why they use that term, conspiracy. Every time they charge somebody with some kind of a crime, they add conspiracy, just like SBF. You know, they had, well, money laundering, and conspiracy to money laundering, you know, this and that. So CNN's uh, new CEO, Chris Licht, says that... (laughs) The uninformed vitriol from the left has been stunning. (laughs) Well, he pretty much nailed it, didn't he? Yeah, vitriol and uninformed. That's how I would characterize the left as well. He says, which proves my point. So much of what passes for news is just name calling, half-truths, and desperation. I I think it's, um, you know, as Matt Taibbi put it, it's uh, hunting for a demographic. And then feeding them what they want to hear, even if you know, it's a lie. And I know people on the right and people in alternative media who've been become multimillionaires doing that, <laughs> some personally, uh, licked, uh, shook up the network's morning lineup by moving host Don Lemon to the morning and then firing Brian Stelter. And we all thank him for that. Uh, Chris. Solis. <laughs> Hopefully we won't see Brian Stelter anywhere. Uh, and then this 80 cities and counties are using pandemic aid to fund guaranteed income pilot programs. We're talking about universal basic income. And I said this from the very beginning when Trump started his PPP stuff, I said, look at how he's doing it. He's shutting down middle-class, uh, you know, Main Street America businesses, mom and pop shops, he's shutting them down, telling them they're non-essential. And then he's going to come back with a PPP and say, here's a little bit of money to keep you going. Here's a government handout. I'm going to tell you you can't work. But here's a government handout. And I'm like, nobody can see how this matches up with the smart cities and the universal basic income and the uh, Great Reset and all the rest of the stuff from World Economic Forum. And nobody was really talking about that at the time. It's just amazing to me. So I said, this is nothing other than training for universal basic income. And so what are they doing now? Now you've got 80 cities and counties using pandemic money to start their own universal basic income pilot programs. They're exactly doing it right now. 82 municipalities across 29 states now doing this and doing it with the COVID money, but don't worry, you know, uh, he was just playing 4d chess. He really wasn't implementing and you know, the, the, uh, world economic forum and, and the UN agenda and getting people acclimated to it. No, Trump wasn't doing that. Trump was playing 4d chess. Just take the job and do the universal basic income later. There's now an organization called mayors for guaranteed income and they're encouraging local governments to seed pilot programs with federal pandemic assistance now continuing on to the biden administration uh, you know who added um, you know their american rescue plan now to the uh, trump ppp and the other stuff which by the way the, these things are just covered and riddled with fraud in every way now the guy who started this group of uh, mayors for guaranteed income Michael Tubbs, the former mayor of Stockton, California. They're one of the first places to put in universal basic income. And they have the distinction of being the uh, biggest city to declare bankruptcy. And when they declared bankruptcy, Reuters had a headline that said this, a 15-year spending binge uh, that is culminating in bankruptcy. That was in 2013. They eventually got out of bankruptcy. And then they got this guy and his mayor. And he says, well, we need to just give everybody a guaranteed basic income. Yeah. He came up with that idea. No, he didn't. As a matter of fact, who came up with that idea? Who was selling that idea? It was, um, Andrew Yang, right? Uh, that's what he made his campaign all about in the early days. And I'd been talking about it for a very, very long time. A- and this was before the lockdowns. So when uh, Yang. Uh, put out his, uh, campaign thing. And it was all about universal basic income. It's like, yeah, I want this guy. And so we scheduled him for an interview. They accepted. Then the morning of they canceled. Must've gone back and seen all the stuff that I've been saying for a very long time about, um, you know, the, uh, universal basic basic income. And that was back in 2019. Uh, I'd already been talking about it long enough that he was able to figure out that I was going to oppose him on this stuff. I really wanted to pin that guy down. I'd like to do some opposition interviews. I just can't get people to come on the show and argue with me. (laughs) I want to argue with some of these people. I want to debate them over these policies anyway, uh, much to the chagrin of conservatives and budget hawks, the state and local recovery funds from this pandemic now under Biden, you know, we had the PPP under under Trump, and um, now we got the ARPA under Biden. Uh, This is being used as seed for a long-term policy change, (coughs) says a guy with DePaul University. But that's what it always was. And, And, you know, when we look at this, to me, it just underscores how necessary Trump was for the Great Reset and for the globalists there's absolutely no way that conservatives and the kind of people who supported Trump, there is no way that they would have stood still for the lockdowns and the, you know, your non-essential stuff. If Hillary Clinton had said that, you know, first calling everybody deplorable, then non-essential shut down. I'm taking your business. Oh, there would have been a massive pushback, but when Trump does it, What's he doing? He's on our side. He can't be with the globalist. The globalists hate him so much. Well, they hate him because of his personality. (laughs) I mean, it's like they hate him because they're competitors with him. They hate him because he's a self-centered, selfish narcissist, and they know he's not going to play ball with them. That's why they hate him. You know, he's not just an opponent to them, but he's not going to be part of the club. You know, he's pushing for himself. He's not pushing for you. And so by putting him in, He was essential. They could not have pulled off what they did in 2020 with Hillary Clinton. They wouldn't have had the conservative base go along with it like stunned sheep and then be told by Alex Jones that it's 4D chess. I know it looks like a betrayal, but it's not really a betrayal. No, it's professional wrestling, isn't it? And he was the announcer for a professional wrestling match. Because of the unprecedented nature of the COVID outbreak and its accompanying slate of federal pandemic-related bills, local governments are spending this money in innovative ways, which makes evaluating how they spend it or plan to spend it a tricky question. So we've got all this money, and we can't really evaluate or track it. You know, it's like the money that we give to Ukraine or we throw into Afghanistan or what. we It's just too much. Too many things. We got a war. We got a pandemic. You expect me to keep accounting records during that? I mean, just got to throw the money out there. Forget about it. You know, if it winds up on the Biden laptop, great. But, you know, we can't look at that either. So, um, yeah, it was always a globalist agenda. The pandemic was. So now you got places like Baltimore, Chicago. uh, They're getting into it. Baltimore, for example. Their program is exactly what Andrew Chang supported. A thousand dollars a month, verbatim. You can call it guaranteed income. It's universal basic income. It's coming from the UN. It's coming from Davos. It's part of the smart city, prison cities, the prison cities. And guess who his biggest supporter was at the time? By the way, you know who gave him so much money to get him started? Elon Musk. That's another data point in my long chain of uh, Musk things. To look at this was like. I know who this guy is. King of crony capitalism. He's delivered on a silver platter for these people. Everything they said they needed to have in order to save the planet, but really in order to lock us down into a climate prison, he delivered. He became the richest man on earth by delivering for them. He gave money to Yang in order to push universal basic income. He's always been a part of that. Anyway, Chicago the nation's largest guaranteed income pilot program, $42 million, uh, but they are, it's half of what Yang wants and half of what they did in Baltimore. But don't worry because there's still more than $220 billion still available. And so, you know, get in line for that free money, more free money. And it's still coming from the supposed uh, COVID relief, even though Biden says it's over. It ain't
2: No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
3: No Over folks. It was always political. It was never a pandemic. listening to The David Knight Show. This story is kind of scary. This is face recognition tech that is used in an entertainment venue to throw a woman out. Does this sound like China? Because it is. Now, this is not invented by China. It was beta tested in China. This is technology that was developed in the U.S. As a matter of fact, even going back, uh, you know, before DARPA's been pushing this kind of stuff, and they 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 had uh, databases and um, casinos. You know, somebody goes in, they're involved in uh, card counting or something, playing blackjack, twenty-one, and you can beat it if you're if you're good at it. You know, there's been movies made about that. As a matter of fact, it was a really good movie that had uh, Kevin Spacey in it. But of course, nobody can stand to watch Kevin Spacey anymore. If we know what we know about his private life. Uh, but it was some very sharp uh, people. It was based on a true story. Some people were very good at uh, math and, and doing it in their heads, and they could keep track of the cards, and, and they could beat the system. So they would identify people who were at card counters, and they would ban them from the casinos, and the casinos would uh, share that information. And the casinos had some of the you know, most sophisticated cameras, and they were everywhere in casinos. And they could zoom in. Like you would not believe As a matter of fact, I did some work for the department of transportation in North Carolina, and they had cameras that they put up and down the interstate and you could turn those things around and you could zoom in forever. Uh, And this is uh, 15 years ago or something. Um, And uh, you could zoom in forever on those things. Uh, It was amazing. And you know where they got them from? The casinos, the casinos were the ones who put the bill to develop that stuff. And then you had, um, you know, the highway, People got those uh, casino type of cameras, but they also pioneered a lot of uh, databases. They were not as sophisticated as they are now. they would have a lot of people in control rooms, looking at everybody, you know, are, are they, you know, sneaking cards on the table and that type of thing, but also looking at them to see if they recognize them, compare them to some of the known people. And over the years they got more sophisticated. Now in this particular case, This is somebody who had gone to New York City to see the Rockettes at Radio City Music Hall for their Christmas Spectacular show. She was a mom with a group of mothers who had Girl Scout troop that was there. Kelly Conlon and her daughter went to New York City the weekend of Thanksgiving as part of a Girl Scout field trip to see the Christmas Spectacular show. But while her daughter and other members of the Girl Scout troop and their mothers got to go enjoy the show, she was not allowed to do so. Madison Square Garden Entertainment had identified and zeroed in on her as security guards approached her right as she got into the lobby. It was pretty simultaneous. She said, I think to me going through the metal detector, I heard over the intercom or the loudspeaker. She said, um, I heard them say woman, long, dark hair, gray scarf. (laughs) She said she was asked her name, asked to produce identification. And they said, I, she said, I believe they said, Our recognition picked you up. And there is a sign there that says facial recognition is being used as a security measure. Now, what is it that they have against her at Madison Square Garden? She is a lawyer. She's an associate with a New Jersey law firm. Uh, For years, they've been involved in personal injury litigation against a restaurant venue that has now been purchased by Madison Square Garden Entertainment. Uh, in New Jersey. And so she said, I don't even practice in New York. Uh, I'm not an attorney that works on cases against Madison square garden. So I've had no New York involvement. I've had no involvement with this company per se. She merely works for a law firm that was involved in litigation against a restaurant that they then bought. And then uh, made these people their enemies. And so they have a policy. uh, they said well we we told you uh, and we sent this to your we have a policy that um if we don't like you, a straightforward policy precludes attorneys who are pursuing active litigation against the company from attending events at our venues until that litigation has been resolved. And we told your law firm twice that uh, nobody from your law firm is allowed to come here and uh, so <laughs> she says, um Uh, She's now upping the legal ante. She said, you know, they've got a liquor license at Madison Square Garden, and that requires them to admit members of the public unless there are people who would be disruptive, who constitute a security threat. If you're going to take a mother and separate the mother from her daughter and the Girl Scouts that she is watching over and to do it under the pretext of protecting disclosure of litigation information, that's absurd. It's un-American. Well, she's right, except that these tactics have been developed by our intelligence agencies, Homeland Security, and our technology companies, tested and used for social credit uh, purposes to uh, limit people's abilities to do things in China. And it's going to be used against us the same way. Now, this is a report by NBC. And I was absolutely amazed that, Whoever wrote this never wondered about where, uh, what kind of facial biometric database uh, they got this stuff from, right? I mean, stop and think about this. These are not, uh, you know, is this something that's being done internally or are they? is there some kind of biometric database that they have bought into, offered by a private company? That'd be a whole story right there, wouldn't it? Or if they got it from the government, that would be a story as well? You know, did they contact the government and say, you know, here's some individual or somebody through the government and buy this stuff from the government say, here's uh, some names and addresses. I'd like to get uh, their driver's license pictures or something so we can put them in our biometric database and identify them immediately, immediately. Aren't you concerned about that? Why isn't NBC asking questions about that? Where did they get this biometric database? From whom did they get it? How are they using this? Why has this big corporation got this? No questions asked. They just cover it from the standpoint well, look, you know, she gets thrown out of uh, the Rockettes show. There's something far more sinister and that has application to all of us, and that is not in the story. In Tennessee, they have found a human heart. This is a strange story. Uh, They found it uh, as they were preparing, and this is a town that's. West of uh, Nashville, they were preparing because we've got a big winter storm coming everywhere um, for Christmas weekend, apparently. So they were uh at the salt mines or wherever. <laughs> it's not a mine, it's a place where they store the salt. And uh, they were preparing to load up to put salt on the road for this storm. And as they were doing it in the salt uh, storage area, they found a human heart heavily desiccated and it was. Um, Uh, shrunk down to a very small size, but still intact. And uh, they noticed it. they asked somebody about it. Obviously they recognized it, uh, severely dehydrated. And uh, they're investigating this, of course, as a murder. They said it looked like the heart had been surgically removed. And that's the only thing they got. Uh, And yet you look at this and compare it to what's going on with abortion, for example. A DC abortion clinic. Remember the young lady who, um, their their group, they got arrested and somebody gave her also uh, uh, the remains of babies that have been aborted. She reported it as a crime and the DC police said, oh, I don't care about that, right? Yeah, I got all these human parts here. We don't care. Yeah, but you find a heart. It looks like it's been surgically removed. We're going to look to see if it's murder. Uh, But if you got. A baby that's been surgically mutilated and murdered, we don't care. As a matter of fact, we're going to arrest you. And we're not going to look for the killers. We know who the killers are. We're not going to do anything about them. We're going to arrest you. That's the way we treat murder in this country, isn't it? So, um, you know, don't uh, look too hard at uh, what is happening here. But, um, you know, we have to pretend, just as I said yesterday, you know, you got that Iowa couple who had made arrangements to get their baby adopted. They didn't, uh, sister was going to adopt or something, but, you know, they're doing drugs, they're doing meth and stuff like that. They killed the baby and then tried to hide the body. They still haven't found the body. So they're coming after them for murder, and rightfully so. But if all these people who attempt abortion and you got a couple of thousand babies in the U.S. alone that survived the abortion, they take them out, they leave them on the table and let them die. It's called Comfort Care by Ralph Northam former governor of Virginia, who was a trained doctor. It was called Comfort Care in the Gosnell trial. Stunned the jury, all of whom, as a precondition of being on the jury, had to acknowledge that they agreed with Roe v. Wade in principle. But they couldn't believe that that was policy, just as America couldn't believe it when Ralph Northam said it. But that is policy. So how can you have something like that? How can you have Democrats who say, we're going to kill babies right up to and beyond the point of birth. We're going to kill babies who survived the abortion. And yet they will look at these things. And, uh, you know, it's just amazing, the inconsistency of, of uh, how we treat murder in this country. This is a story from space, a sad message from Mars. that makes social media cry as they have a picture of a uh, a robot they, um, you know, that they sent uh, the lander that they sent the insight lander, uh, it's getting covered with dust as you can see there in the picture. And so it's losing power because it can't get any sunlight. It runs on solar power. So a sad message from Mars is making social media users cry back here on planet earth. My power is really low. So this may be the last image I can send. Oh, oh, that's so sad. Well, guess what? All these people who have so much empathy for what I think is just nonsense. That, look, NASA PR made this stuff up. They're, these people are looking at this thing and weeping over it, and they have absolutely no empathy for babies, right? I bet these people who are doing it, because you look at the types of things they're saying, it sounds like uh, the, the planet-hugging leftists that would be supporting abortion. I blame George Lucas and R2-D2. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's, it's like Star
3: Wars. It's a robot in space. Yeah, maybe it be, <laughs> And so the people at NASA say, uh, I can translate droid. <laughs> C-3PO. But what he's saying, sir, is uh, my power is really low. So this may be the last image I can send. Look, NASA's just making this stuff up. Or some wise guy engineer uh, put a message to be transmitted back when uh, the power was getting really low. You know, he hard coded that in and said, uh, this is going to be, I, I I'm, you know, I'm dying of <laughs> power starvation. This is my last message. Ah, you know, he coded that into the end of the program. Uh, but, uh, I, and I know there's a lot of you who don't even believe there is a probe on Mars. I, I understand your skepticism <laughs> based on what NASA has done over the years, but this is all just made up or embellished. Uh, to try to get social media attention, and, uh, you know, uh, it's just really obvious. One person says, so why am I crying over a robot? Well, maybe it's because they carry with them the hopes and dreams of humanity. You mean a baby doesn't do that? A baby doesn't do that for you? You look at a baby and it's, "Ah, it's a lump of cells. That doesn't carry the hope and dreams of humanity, or curiosity, or wonder. Another one says, uh, even if it's only a robot, it's an honorary member of humanity. And I would argue that it is symbolic of humanity itself, but not the babies that they want to kill. They're not an honorary member of humanity. They are not symbolic of humanity itself. Not even a fully developed nine month old baby. No, no sympathy for them whatsoever. Well, you know we look at how we can get bonded to things other than real people. That's a real problem for all of us in this technological age, isn't it? Because closer to home, not even in Mars, you have a study that says Americans can tolerate less than four hours with family on holidays. A survey of 2,000 Americans who are traveling to visit family for the holidays found respondents can spend an average of three hours and 54 minutes with their family before needing a moment to themselves. So you just set your watch right there. (laughs) And they probably that three hours and 54 minutes that they were with family members, they're probably constantly checking their big brother smartphone as well, right? We're all guilty of that to some degree. It's, It's amazing to go in restaurants, isn't it? And see everybody sitting at a table reading their smartphone instead of talking to each other. So how many hours does the average American spend watching television each day, four hours with the TV, three hours and 45 minutes on our smartphones on average, but we can't spend four hours with friends and family. 95% of respondents believe it's important to spend the holidays with their family. They have a guilt trip about that. They know that there is something there. There should be something there. There's some kind of human connection. I don't know. They're made of flesh and, and, you know, they they're, they're human, but I'd really rather be with this smartphone. Or I'd rather <clears throat> have a, an imaginary connection to people on a television set or actors or whatever, right? Instead of real people. Or somebody that I meet through the internet, somebody that's in the metaverse. And this is how they're going to get us. It's a long continuum. You know, we have been. <clears throat> gradually, it's a gradual process of disconnection from each other. You always thought when they talked about the nuclear family, I thought, well, that's kind of interesting, you know, nuclear family. But they meant it as an insult. They meant it as an insult. Well, they, they, they contrasted, you know, nuclear family, mom and dad and the kids, right? Except when they started talking about that as a social phenomenon, They coined the term nuclear family because they had split off from the multi-generational family that we used to have. You know, we used to have, uh, families like the Waltons, you know, where you got grandma and grandpa and the mom and dad and the kids and the, you know, living in, in rural areas, uh, and, uh, you know, multiple generations living under the same house. And then everybody started to, you know, the, then, then we started having a mobile society where you would get a job and you would travel to another city. You know, that was our life, you know, disconnected from our roots where we had grown up and extended family in, in an area. And uh, that's a very common experience. And then you wind up eventually splitting the Adam, you know, even the nuclear family splits up into individuals who all live by themselves, this epidemic of loneliness. And we just somehow are losing all the ability to connect with each other because we're so connected to our technology. We'd rather have a conversation with an imaginary robot on Mars than, um, or imaginary characters on television who entertain us. That's why when something happens to celebrities, You know, they die or something, it it, it strikes a chord with everybody because they feel like they know them, even though they've never met them. Don't know what they're like at all. Why, when they would speak on social media would have an influence politically until they spoke too much and they they started to get to really know who these people were. Uh, but anyway, the average respondent said, uh, staying with family for three and a half days, the big issue of course was uh, sleeping arrangements. And I can understand that that's the difficult thing, uh, having, uh, people so on average, uh, two people end up sleeping on something other than a bed this holiday season in a household, uh, because, um, you know, when people get together, so that puts a strain and that is a understandable thing. Uh, but of course there's always going to be things that uh, kind of get in the way. I've had several people on a personal note. I've had several people who have asked about, um, some of the Christmas music and, um, so let, let me just, uh, say to some of the people who have asked, uh, if they could buy it, that's really encouraging. I really appreciate that. And I thank you for letting me know that you like that, that, um, I really do enjoy doing them. I wish I could do more. Uh, I set this thing up actually before I even left, uh, InfoWars because I had a project that I wanted to do. Um, uh, but these Christmas songs are, uh, arrangements, orchestrations of things that I've played on piano or played, uh, and bands and that type of thing. And a lot of people say, where can I get the full song? Well, they're adapted. They're only 30 seconds to a minute long. Typically there's one that's longer. That's about, uh, that's over a minute. Uh, that's the, uh, yeah, some children, uh, that's adapted uh, from, um, I can't remember the guy's name now, uh, Dave Grusin who, uh, did his, 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 Piano arrangement that I adapted that from. I shortened it up, um, added some strings and some other things to it. But um, uh, I really like that that arrangement. Uh, anyway, uh, so some people ask for the full song. There isn't, you know, the full song is here. I've been putting up on a daily basis the videos that we play here, because we, you know, because it's a uh, a show that has video with it. Uh, we do a video cover of it of all these different songs. And so I've put up the videos as well as just the audio by itself for the Subscribestar people. I hadn't done anything uh, for them for a while. And so, uh, and it's easily downloadable from Subscribestar. Uh, But I'm going to uh, upload all the songs in audio format on Friday. If anybody wants it, Uh, we're going to put it up on the podcast. And so it'll be broadcast out as a podcast. So we'll put all of them together. And there's about a dozen of them or so. And uh, so it'll be uh, one file that'll have uh, just music on it. It'll be all of them together. Maybe that will be something that uh, people like. Um, yeah, I put all this stuff together for a music project that I've wanted to do for decades, but um, I, I do appreciate people saying that. And again, we're not selling it, but just doing it as uh, something that I enjoy doing it and uh, want to offer it for free to people. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you
0: do when you win?
3: We're going to be right back. Stay with us. You're listening to The David Knight Show. Let me say before I get back into the news, I said uh, this is the two-year anniversary of the show, and it has gone by amazingly quickly. And I I just want to thank everybody and give you a a little idea of what was going on in our lives, in this family, and uh, where we were when um, we had some listeners stepped in to help us at the beginning of all this. You know, I was, when I go back and I look at what was happening in 2020, I was just absolutely incredulous that we could have an American president follow and lockstep this globalist agenda that had been practiced for 20 years. I knew everything about it and talked about it so many times on the air. I couldn't believe that he would do that. I couldn't believe that Americans would submit themselves and fear to this I couldn't believe that they would close down their churches, shut their businesses. Some protested, some resisted, some rebelled, but it was such a tiny minority for the most part. At the beginning of it, everybody was shutting down out of precaution or out of fear. And so, you know, I I look at this and, and by the time we got to June, June 21st, 2020, it was a Sunday, it was Father's Day. We were four months into this, and I've been screaming on a daily basis, even before this had happened, for months before it happened, about where this is all leading, how we were never going to be able to get our power back from these people that had seized it. And I just basically, you know, we're looking at <laughs> this anti-globalist Shill, this president, and all the people following it. So on that Sunday, at Father's Day, I was just so depressed. And I wrote uh, lyrics to a song that I have uh,
5: for my children. So that, uh,
3: it's from Philippians. And it goes like this the uh, lyrics, one part of the lyrics. Child of my heart. I want you to know that
5: whatever happens will work for your eternal good. That you, without fear, know your Father loves you. That's where we were. In joy or in sorrow or in chains, rejoice about that.
3: I worked in the midst of a disinformation campaign, which made it even worse. All the people who had been talking about this for decades, all the people who knew the game plan, who saw this being rolled out, oh, he predicted it 20 years ago. you damn right he did. He knew everything about that, and he went along with it because he made record amounts of money doing it. Had Mike Adams pretending he didn't know what CDC and Fauci were up to. He knew exactly what they were up to. He had covered that lie, that game about vaccines, flu vaccines. They ran the same plays that they did for the flu vaccine on an annual basis. He knew that. But he's putting up charts from the CDC showing that cancer and heart disease are taking a backseat to COVID. Isn't it ironic that now these vaccines from Trump, from Trump, are causing accelerated, turbocharged heart disease and cancer. When the CDC said, look, COVID's more dangerous than heart disease or cancer. Well, let's make COVID, let's make heart disease and cancer a lot more dangerous then, right? No, it was never that. It was a numbers game. It was a scam and they knew it. Alex was a limited hangout. He would oppose lockdown, but he'd tell you, don't worry. We got Trump there. We just got to keep Trump in. Uh, that'll solve everything. We just keep Trump in. And so when Trump created the lockdown election and lost two days later, Steve Pachinik comes on and tells everybody this CIA type fable. Oh yeah. We had, uh, uh, cyber security and, uh, working with Trump and they put water, watermark ballots and, uh, they got blockchain, uh, watermark ballots and there's this quantum computer thing going on as well. And, and he's already sent out 20,000 national guard and they're arresting people right now, two days later. And Owen is like, Whoa, dude, Whoa. <laughs> like, Oh, man, it's like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, you know, <laughs> working with these guys. Um, no, I immediately opposed that. I mean, it went big. You know, Rush Limbaugh was talking about it. Didn't mention Alex, but he's talking about it. Alex got 4 million views. You had um, Clarence Thomas' wife sends an email to Mark Meadows, chief of staff of Trump, saying, I hope this is true. Is this true? You're doing this stuff? It's like... There's no way that that can be true. Come on. And I've got a recording of me talking to Alex about that. I said, you know, this is not true. Well, I don't know anything about that. You got 4 million views. You know about, uh, Oh, you know, well, I think it's, you know, I mean, he just changed his story in the recording. He was lying, lying to me, lying to all of you. So. I was told by his uh, producer, Daria, that Pachinik had called him up and demanded I be fired because I was opposing him everywhere. I was opposing him on social media. I was opposing him live on air. And he kept coming back to Infowars. And every time he did, I would oppose him at all those places again. And so I was fired six weeks later. But it was really, at that point, they'd added the stop the steel grift. You know, Roger Stone. Recorded on video saying, Yeah, oh, this this election thing, this is going to be, we're going to raise a lot of money off of this. It's going to be like falling off a log to raise money off this stuff. Well, that's what they did. They put together Stop the Steel Grift. You had Alex, you had Ali Alexander, you had Roger Stone. You know, they're going around doing these events with Nick Fuentes and stuff, right? I don't know if Nick was cut in on any of the money or not. Uh, we weren't cut in on any of it, not that I wanted any of it. 30 pieces of silver. But, um, anyway, by the time we got to the end of December, it was pretty clear that this wasn't just going to stop with their, you know, fundraising and speeches. They were heading to, uh, to Washington. And so I was trying to tell people that's going to be a dangerous, stupid thing to do. First of all, you shouldn't give these people any money. Trump's not doing anything with the money. Certainly they Stop the steel guys of Alex and Roger. They're not doing anything with the money right? They're not doing anything to overturn the election. Trump didn't do it. Trump was keeping the money. But when we got to uh, that Monday, um, I think it was the 13th. Yeah. And we got to that Monday and that was the day that the electoral college votes were tabulated. And again, you don't have a meeting in a physical building where the people come and they all vote and that type of thing. Uh, these are, every political party has a slate of electors. We even did it when we got on the ballot with the libertarian party in North Carolina. Um, you know, you turn into the state a slate of electors and uh, for your party. And then if your candidate wins, it's a winner take all. And, um, so, um, all of you then get to cast a vote. You don't go anywhere to do it, but you get together and you cast a vote and you report, this is who I vote for. And those votes were all turned in on that Monday. And um, the, uh, and I said, look, there's nothing that's going to happen with this. I said, here's what could have happened. I wrote an op-ed piece about it, and I talked about it in detail on that Monday. And I said, uh, you had four states, we had razor within margins. And you had questions about whether or not the votes were tabulated correctly or not. I said the Trump administration, they did a half-hearted effort to try to challenge this in court. What they should have done is taken it to the legislatures because in these four states that I mentioned with razor thin margins of victory for Biden, there uh, where there were questions about the integrity of the election. I said all four of those legislatures were controlled by Republicans. In two of those States you had Republican governors as well. But I said, if you look at the constitution, it says that the, that the legislature will make the rules for how this is going to be set up. So you could wind up in court with a situation where you had multiple slate of electors, one of them sent by the executive branch. You know, we got the board of elections is under the governor. And uh, so they certify one slate of electors according to their official account. But then you could also have a slate of electors that would be coming from the state legislature. And you even had Thomas Massey and Pence, by the time you got up to January the 6th, they said, um, well, um, they didn't give us anything to work with. We've only got one slate of electors from each state. And I've had some people get confused about, well, wait a minute. I saw these electors who got together and said, we support Trump and everything. Those were the people that were on the list of the state party. Those are not people that were being sent by the state legislature or by the state board of elections. They had no standing to do that unless they were recognized by a state legislature or the governor. So if you have the governor send one state slate of electors and the legislature sends another state of electors, then Pence could have said, I've got competing slates of electors here. I'm not going to make a decision about this. I'm going to send it to the court. But they didn't lay the groundwork for that. So on that Monday, I explained that to people. And I said, there isn't anything you're going to do January the 6th, except get into trouble. That's a trap. I didn't know <laughs> that weekend, Alex had been going around speechifying everywhere. As a matter of fact, he'd paid like $50,000 that weekend to get a spot where he could stand up and speak to the crowd and raise money. So that didn't set well with him. So by Thursday I was fired and, uh, I didn't really know what I was going to do. You know, um, fired me, fired my sons. Uh, you know, Travis was working as my producer. My other son was doing a little bit of work. It wasn't uh, a big job with him. But, um, you know, I just wanted to emphasize to people that, you know, stop sending your money (laughs) because nothing is being done. You've missed the deadline. There's nothing to be contested here. They didn't lay the groundwork for any legitimate contest of of this. And this is heading for a very dangerous confrontation in uh, Washington, DC. So, um, anyway, that got me fired, which is fine because, and I mentioned my state of mind throughout 2020, because I was just tired of it. That's fine, you know, I'm not making a difference. Um, People, it's like they're sleepwalking into some kind of a dystopian future that I've been talking about for years, so obviously it makes no difference. Uh, And I just, I was just ready to, that's fine. That's that's it. Um, After nine months of that, there's just a little bit of tiny resistance, just a little bit of awareness about that. So um, I was fired on that f- Thursday, and then on Friday, uh, as we're talking about, you know, what we're going to do in terms of, you know, moving back east and moving into something that's, you know, in a, a isolated rural area or something like that. Um, I had um, Chan and then uh, David and Karen and some other listeners who they knew, my email address i'd set up the proton email address so i had fortunately i thought about it but um i wanted to have something that was going to be more secure so that i could have people securely send me tips so i set up something on proton mail and i'd had that for a year or two and so some people knew that email address and uh, that wasn't cut off i lost a lot of my communication with people when i uh was uh, kicked out because it was email that was coming through infowars but I still had that email address, and so I get this stuff, and it's like somebody sent you something with PayPal, and it's like, I don't even have a PayPal account. What is that about? And so I looked into it, and we set it up, and uh, some people sent us money just uh, out of really um, kindness because we were fired just before Christmas. And um, so that was a lot of encouragement and a lot of support. I was really surprised by that. That weekend we talked about what we should do because we also got a lot of letters saying, you know, please uh, keep your show going or something like that. It's like, oh, I don't know what, what should we do? But I wanted to set the record straight. There were a lot of things as Alex was getting all these phone calls from people who were angry that he had fired me from the show and it was getting him angry at me and he was making up all kinds of nonsense about me. And he had, as I said, he had more stories about why he fired me than Hillary Clinton had about Benghazi. And he was changing him about as rapidly as she did with Benghazi. So that weekend we talked about it. we didn't have any equipment to do a show. We live streamed. We got a little uh, handheld thing for the for the phone and we live streamed onto my Twitter account. And um out of the living room. And my son was there kind of holding it you know, to make sure it didn't didn't fall. And uh then we had uh you know, we did that and and um people started watching that and um, we had listeners who uh, contacted us and said, they want to buy us cameras, (laughs) audio equipment. Um, and, uh, and you know, all, all the stuff that we needed and, and people just gave it to us and we just cannot thank you enough for your generosity. So the PayPal thing lasted just a few months and nearly took us under when they cut us off. Uh, Matt Tiabi, uh, T I T I E B brother, uh, contact me about, um, the PayPal purges and, um, had a little bit of what I talked about. But when we talked on the phone, he said, uh, so what do you do? How do you fund your program? And I said, it's just people sending us money. And he laughed and I said, yeah, it is. I mean, it's Subscribestar. We have people who subscribe there have people who mail us checks outside of the system. Um, and he laughed about that. And I thought, yeah, you know, it really is strange. I always think about how strange it is. So
5: Just want to thank you.
3: It is uh It is something that we see God as our provider, but he's done it through you. So I just want to thank you. The David Knight Show. And here's more uh, messages and tips. Thank you, all of you. Uh, Ralph D. Thank you for the tip. He says, uh, "Merry Christmas. God bless you and your family, Mister Knight." Uh, the Drive Crew loves you. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Slim Pickens, uh, David Knight, most solid man in news. Well, thank you. That's that's really kind. And Guard Goldsmith. This guard is uh, somebody with the utmost integrity. And a great deal of knowledge. And I can't recommend uh, uh, Guard enough. And he's involved in so many different things, working for MRC TV and um, Liberty Conspiracy and uh, writing articles. Guard has done so many things in his life. But anyway, thank you, Guard. I appreciate the tip and the kind words. Uh, he says, uh, in honor of integrity, with great thanks to your family. Thank you very much. Happy anniversary, marking the beginning of a powerful, life changing endeavor for so many who admire you. Thank you. Let's talk about what happens if Trump gets indicted, because there's been criminal referrals for Trump. And uh, as it was reported this morning, early this morning, they have decided to release the tax returns, release the Kraken, right? So let's talk about all of this. What does this stuff mean? And you know, as I out, <laughs> I do not support Trump, but I do not support what the Democrats are doing. It is uh, McCarthyism. It is a very dangerous, a lot of very dangerous precedents are being set by the Democrats uh, against this. So uh, this is an excellent article from American Thinker. And I don't have uh, the writer's name here on this uh, uh, copy that I've got here. But the article is, uh, even if Garland is foolish enough to indict Trump, Trump can still run and win. That's right. And he he talks about a very important historical precedent that I was not aware of. And I saw him on Custer because you probably haven't heard of this thought of this either. Uh, he said the problem for the democrats unfamiliar as they are with the constitution and american history is that there is no reason for Trump not to run and win even if he's deep in the bowels of Leavenworth or some other federal penitentiary. Because when you look at the requirements for president of the constitution it says, No person except a natural born citizen or a citizen of the United States at the time of the adoption of this Constitution shall be eligible to the office of president. Neither shall any person be eligible to the office who shall not have attained to the age of 35 and have been 14 years a resident in the United States. So that's it. You have to be a natural born citizen. There's been a lot of debate and discussion over that. I think that that disqualifies. Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, Barack Obama, (laughs) in terms of these uh, things. Anyway, um, you have to be a natural-born citizen at least, uh, 35 years old and living in the U.S. for 14 years. There's no requirement saying that someone charged with having been convicted of or even being imprisoned for any type of crime is ineligible to serve. As a matter of fact, historically, uh, we have already had A felon who was convicted of sedition run for president while in prison without anybody complaining that he was disqualified. Who was that? Benedict Arnold? No. (laughs) Eugene Debs, ardent socialist from Indiana, who was one of the founding fathers of the socialist and communist movements here in America, the international workers of the world. He founded that, uh, they were called nicknamed the wobblies. As a matter of fact, he's got in this article, a cartoon of, uh, Eugene Debs behind bars it says, uh, anyhow, uh, there are worse places than a front porch. Uh, Yours for presidency, Eugene V. Debs. So uh, I don't know what that was in reference to, but nevertheless, it's a cartoon of him in, uh, in jail. Unlike today's American leftists, whose socialism is grounded in race and sexual orientation, the Wobblies, the group that he founded, were pure Marxists who dreamed that the workers of the world would unite in a glorious global socialist paradise just kind of like the World Economic Forum does, right? This is one of the reasons why George Gilder, who wrote the book Life After Google, said that the technocracy, the people in Silicon Valley, they said they're neo-Marxists. They really are. I mean, these, these corporations in Silicon Valley, they, they have a Marxist perspective. As George Gilder put it, their, their fatal conceit is similar the karl marx karl marx uh, believed that um uh that with the industrial revolution there was not going to be anything like scarcity anymore we were going to have an abundance forever of all material things and so the only the industrial revolution had solved all that now we just needed to figure out how to allocate this stuff and george gilder said The guys in Silicon Valley think the same way. They think their new technologies of, uh, you know, the internet, uh, genetics, robotics, artificial intelligence, nanotech. They think that that's going to create, and we've heard them all say this at one time or the other. They've all said this about each one of those technologies. Any one of these technologies by themselves can help us to have everything that we need, uh, live forever and all the rest of this stuff, right? And uh, it's a fatal conceit. It's naive. Uh, but it's the same perspective that Karl Marx had. We have infinite material goods. You know, even Karl Marx didn't think that uh, people in the Industrial Revolution were going to live forever. That's a new wrinkle that's been added by Elon Musk and these other people pushing transhumanism, uh, a singularity where we merge with machines and live forever and somehow trends for the essence of what we are as humanity, somehow we transfer that into a machine. That's just pure wishful projection. <laughs> You're not going to be able to project yourself into a machine. Come on. Uh, you don't even understand. Like I've had the discussions with Zoltan, fan. You don't even, he doesn't even know, he doesn't even have an idea what a human is. And you got other people who, uh, yeah, I, I really like Hugo de Garris, but it, it's kind of a, a materialism where he thinks that if he can replicate the human brain sufficiently that it'll spark in that the, artificial intelligence just spark into being, it'll become a being. All you got to do is just replicate that human brain and you're going to get a being. Well, why would you think that? I mean, if you do an exact replica of the human body, would you expect it to jump to life? Because you know, when people die for whatever reason, even if you were to go in and, and fix whatever it was, they killed them. You know, you got to, you got a bad heart or something? Okay, well, let's put a good heart in. You know, I just found one on a pile of salt over here. Um, but you know, let's uh <laughs> let's let's add some water and reconstitute it and put it in this person perfectly good heart. They had a bad heart, so now we got that in there. All right, let's just wait. He's gonna come to life. No? No, even Mary Shelley, when she was uh, the crude understanding that people had then, uh, thinking that electricity was somehow the spark to life because they could take rudimentary electricity and apply it to the leg of a dead frog and see it twitch oh well that's the spark of life so mary shelly oh we'll stitch together a human being and we'll you know uh put up a lightning rod and use lightning prometheus rebound right reborn or whatever we'll Will reanimate uh, this dead body with lightning or something like that. But you know, I told him. I said, "Yo, so what do you think it is? What do you think life is? You don't think that we got a soul or something? Uh, that there's some kind of a connection that once the soul leaves, that's it. Where does the soul come from? Where does it go? You haven't thought about the things that are above the physical. You haven't thought about the metaphysical. You haven't thought about what is above and beyond." the natural, the supernatural. You haven't even considered that. Uh, I heard one theologian say, you know, when the scientist finally gets to the mountaintop, he's going to see the theologian's already there. They're not thinking about the big problems. They're not thinking about the real issues here. Anyway, let's go back to Trump. How did I get onto that? Um, (laughs) So we've already had a felon convicted of sedition running for president, Eugene Debs. In 1897, Debs founded the Social Democracy of America, which quickly failed. It, in turn, gave birth to the Social Democratic Party of the United States, the SDP. Debs became a board member. Then in 1900, Debs ran for president as the candidate for the Social Democratic Party of the United States. And when that group disbanded, he joined the Socialist Party of America, under the SPA's banner, he ran for president in 1904, 1908, 1912, and 1920. You think, you think Beto is a, <laughs> is a three-time loser? Uh, this, guy, <laughs> this guy is a four-time loser, and he went for it again. Never gave up, right? And the 1920 election is the one that interests us. Debs had opposed America's involvement in World War I. That is such an interesting period. Uh, that saw the split in liberals in America. You know, Prior to that, liberals were people who supported liberty. And so they would support financial liberty, they would support individual liberty, they would support civil liberty, all these different things. You had people who supported liberty. But what happened was, with World War I and Wilson pushing that, you had a split. And you had uh, people who uh, were against the war, and taking kind of a more of a civil liberties orientation and the people who were really, uh, the economic liberty was more important to them and it kind of split at that point in time. And, um, and then to further drive a wedge and everything, you had the Palmer raids with Jager Hoover, who then used that to launch his career into the massive bureaucracy, the FBI. So it's a very interesting period. Uh, Debs opposed, the war, the U.S. involvement in it. And as this person says, Wilson, Woodrow Wilson is actually the father, not just of globalism, but he's also the father of today's expert and race-obsessed progressives. Truly is. He's also the guy that ushered in the income tax, the Federal Reserve, World War I, all these other things. The League of Nations, you know, the, pro, uh, uh, the um, forerunner of the U.N., so uh, Wilson identified him as a traitor. This is he had done people who, the guy who did the movie, The Spirit of 76, that talked about the American Revolution. Wait a minute. You're showing the British as bad guys in some of these scenes. You better edit your movie. Oh, he didn't edit his movie. Gave him $10,000 fine, 10 years in jail. Supreme Court said there is no free speech in movies. That was the period of time around there. Very authoritarian uh, period of time under Woodrow Wilson. As a massive restructuring of our our country and our values in a very short period of time and our institutions, I should say, for the most part. Uh, So Debs was arrested and charged with sedition. Falls under the same umbrella as insurrection. Oh, we all know about that, don't we? Debs was found guilty sentenced to 10 years in prison, just like the guy who made a movie about 1776. He was also disenfranchised from voting. But what the court could not do was to prevent him from running for president. Despite his conviction and imprisonment on sedition, Debs ran for president in 1920 and got almost 1 million votes, 3.4% of the total votes cast. That'd be really good for a third party today. Neither his criminal record nor his address, the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary, was a barrier to his candidacy. In 1923, Warren G. Harding commuted his sentence to time served. And he lived another three years, dying at 70 from heart failure. So here's the lesson to learn from all this. As he points out, you look at the Constitution, there's nothing in there that says that you're disqualified if you are a felon. You just have to be an American citizen, natural citizen, over the age of 35, Trump's well over that. (laughs) live in the country for 14 years, he's well over that as well. Uh, So the Democrats' recurring fever dreams about knocking Trump out under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, the Disqualification Clause, is nonsense, both objectively and historically. Objectively, because we know that clause, ratified in 1868, was intended to apply to men who had served or aided the Confederacy. The clause was also rendered null by the 1878 Amnesty Act, which came after it. They're also nonsense historically because the clause did not bar Debs, a convicted seditionist, from running for president. So the law was specific. The law was overruled with the Amnesty Act, and nobody thought that it applied to Debs. And even though he was convicted and imprisoned for sedition, he was allowed to run for president and get three and a half percent of the vote. so uh the conclusion this guy has, which is exactly right. he says, "Look, if Garland is wise, he will refuse to charge Trump with anything because if he does so, he will make Trump a martyr. That's exactly right, and that's what's happened so far. The thing that's really It's interesting. The thing that keeps Trump going like this energizer bunny is their persecution. That is a single thing. When I talk to people about this, well, if Trump isn't on our side, why are they attacking him? It's this bifurcated vision of the world. Everything is either this or that. It's the Republican or Democrat. You're either with us or you're against us. And if you're, you know, if they're against some guy, that means he's good. No, I say Stalin and Hitler. Right, they were united against us. Then Hitler attacked Stalin, and then Stalin joined us. That didn't make Stalin a good guy, (laughs) except to the left. (laughs) They loved Stalin, but uh, no, they're just competing groups of criminals or dictators. Um, Patrick, thank you very much. Patrick S, thank you for the tip. I appreciate that. Frank Wood, thank you as well. Uh, David, you're truly a man of well. I appreciate that, but you know I'm just a person like everybody else. Uh, may God continue to bless you and your family. We all depend on you and what you do. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Greg Talent, thank you for the tip. Harps, the boss, I hope Karen is feeling better. Her ankle is. Um, again, she like I said, she had several things happen this weekend. She had a, a tick bite that got us really worried because it really flared up. The thing dug in, we didn't realize it was there. And uh, because, um, you know, Lyme disease, courtesy of your federal government, (laughs) is a thing around here. Uh, You know, we were concerned about that. But it didn't turn into a ring, and it it started to come down as well. So thank you for your concern and prayers. Appreciate that. Let's talk a little bit more about Trump. As they're coming after him, even the New York Times says, I just told you, they have no way they can stop him from running. All they can do is turn him into a martyr. Even if they put him in jail, they can turn him into a martyr. And he will continue to divide everybody into people with him and people against him and so forth. He'll continue to divide the Republican Party into oblivion. But the New York Times says the release of his tax returns tax returns could herald a new era for taxpayer privacy. I would say it'd be a new error, E-R-R-O-R. This is written yesterday. This morning, Uh, As I was checking the news about seven o'clock is about an hour or two old news announcements that yes, they have decided that they're going to go through with this. They're going to return, release the returns, release the Kraken. And um, so the New York Times says as a presidential candidate in 2016, Trump teased that he would release his tax returns, that it was imminent, the release of the returns, but he never did that. And he came out and he said, they quote him, uh, I have a very big returns, as you know, and I have everything all approved, very beautiful, (laughs) and we'll be working that over in the next period of time. This is not like a normal tax return. And I defended him on that years ago. I said, look, you know, here's the thing about the income tax. As many people have said about other laws, but it. It's especially true of the income tax. A law that is sufficiently complex is the same as having no law at all. If nobody understands what the income tax is, including the people that you contact at the IRS, we're not telling you anything about this. You know, it's uh, it's too complicated, it's too subjective, and that's the whole problem. You know, just like Joe Bannister, that I've interviewed so many times, uh, agent of truth.com is his website. He's He's a solid guy. He really is. He was a criminal investigator for the IRS. And as he was investigating some of these people they said were criminal, he decided that he would look at their arguments and try to debunk them. And as he looked at their arguments, these tax protesters, so-called, they were constitutionalists, actually. As he looked at it, he says, I don't see any way to debunk. It. So he asked his supervisors and that got him in trouble. And he kept looking at it. they, they turned against him. And so, you know, he eventually um, uh, wound up getting kicked out. But, and it didn't even have anything to do with him questioning the income tax. At one point he said, uh, because these were, they were doing criminal investigation, which meant that uh, they carried a gun and they got paid more money than the typical IRS agents and stuff like that. But every year, because they were doing criminal investigations, they had to be audited. And so he said one year he went in and the, uh, the IRS agent that was auditing him had an attitude about it. You know, it was like, oh, oh, you got your gun. Oh, I think you're, you're big, big shot here. That type of thing. Right. Uh, you think you're somebody, huh? Well, I'm going to cut you down to size, that type of deal. Didn't say that, but you know, that type of attitude. And, uh, so the person came up with this, uh, you know, oh yeah, you owe several thousand dollars more. And so he contested that. And after it was all done, they wound up owing him several thousand dollars because he had done his taxes very conservatively up to that point. And so, uh, that, that's the issue. You know, if you got a law that is sufficiently complex, and this is what we should be concerned about with the army of 87,000 IRS agents that Biden wants to unleash on us, that the Republicans are doing nothing to stop. Uh, when these people bring you in to audit you, the law is going to be whatever they subjectively believe it is because it's so complex. You could say, well, this is the way that I interpret it and I interpret it to my advantage. Right? Uh, there is it, it, the law has to be simple and direct, whether it's, it's like it, it, or it's lawless because the people who interpret it, the people who enforce it can make it mean whatever they want if it is sufficiently complex. And so not only is the IRS code, very, very complex. But Trump's tax returns are very, very complex. And I've said this for years, and I'll continue to say it. You know, I, again, I, I think he is a failed president in the most charitable uh, view of history. I think, in, in my opinion, he's a traitor. Uh, but come after him for the real stuff. This is To me, this is like coming after Dennis Hastert because he withdrew his money in a way to not draw attention to it when he was being blackmailed for being a pedophile. They don't want to talk about him being a pedophile, but they'll talk about him taking his own money out of the bank in a way to avoid reports. It's like, are you kidding me? You shouldn't even have that law there. You should have a law against people who are pedophiles, and you shouldn't protect them with some phony statute of limitations. He should be going to jail for what he was being blackmailed for. But you're going to send him to jail because of this know-your-customer money-laundering nonsense. So that's what we're looking at with Trump. You know, I think for his complicity in this globalist agenda, for him getting rid of and bragging about how it was an accomplishment to get rid of the testing of the vaccines, he should go to jail. He should go to jail for that. That resulted in the murder of people. Whether he did it willingly, knowingly, or stupidly, he should go to jail. Manslaughter. We're talking about manslaughter versus premeditated murder. That's the difference that we're looking at here. So you could fight about that in the court, but it's objectively the case. You know, people get so upset when I call it the Trump shots. Why is it that Trump supporters get angry at me when I call it the Trump shots? Boy, that really sets them off. So I'll put it in the title a lot of times. <laughs> Why is it because they know how they're killing people and crippling people? They know it's evil, and so they don't want it associated with Trump, except Trump associates himself with it. Trump calls himself the father of the vaccine. You know in a way, I'm like the father of the vaccine. I take all credit for it, you know well, give him the credit. Well, Mark Levin was saying in january twenty twenty one look at this, you got the Joe Biden is taking credit for the vaccines. Trump did it. Trump should take credit. Take the credit back from him, Trump, you know, this guys I said, yeah, give him the credit. And I, I got A lot of people mad at me cuz I criticized Mark Levin. It's like uh I got to tell you how I how I see it. You call the balls and the fouls as I see them here. So, his tax we got a a, a tax law that is so complex. That only in the most obvious circumstances is it clear what's going on uh, with wages or something like that. Which, by the way, the income tax is not a wage tax. They didn't start taxing wages until World War II, and they said that was going to be a temporary thing. They never took it off. The income tax was supposed to be on real income. It was supposed to be on the 1% of the 1%. And it was only about 1% that they charged them for things for passive income, what we call passive income, investment income, and things like that today. That was the only thing that was taxed. They made it a wage tax and snuck that in us without any, uh, you know, uh, without any real oversight during World War II and kept it on. So um, the whole thing is a fraud, but this gives them all the weapons that they need. They can take, uh, they can multiply His complicated tax return with all these different uh, companies and different countries, they can multiply the complexity of that times the complexity of the income tax system itself. And they'll have a field day with this stuff. And so you're going to see a lot of reports about, you know, what he was doing. Uh, Then they may find some criminal uh, activity there. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, he's dealing in New York. He's paying off politicians. He made most of his money in New York city. Legendary corruption there, and uh, so I'm sure they're going to find some criminal stuff in there. But you know, they can find some things with the income tax as well. So on Tuesday, the House Ways and Means Committee was going to vote, and they did vote yesterday to make public six years of his tax records. The action was made possible, says the New York Times, after the Supreme Court last month declined to block the Treasury Department, which oversees the IRS, from releasing. The returns to Congress. So, um, the, um, the treasury department was going to do it to Congress. Some people, you know, they, they pushed back against it. And, uh, so the Supreme court paved the way for this, gave them the ability to do it. And they've announced this morning, they're going to release the records, the formal formal release of Trump's tax records Would represent both a significant act of transparency and what some fear is the end of an era of taxpayer privacy. Do you really believe that? (laughs) This is the New York Times. If they get revealed, says John Koskinen, who served as the IRS commissioner during the Obama and Trump administrations, he says, if they get revealed, it seems to me they ought to have a pretty good reason for why that's in the public interest. It is a dangerous precedent, he said. Well, I I don't think the income tax stuff is secure. Nothing is secure. I think the CIAs had their data hacked. They had their the uh CIA CIA or the NSA, whoever was running Vault 7, maybe both of them. You know, they had a program, they had a manual for how they were going to hack other people and they got hacked. <laughs> Exposing that in Vault 7. We can hack other people. We can make ourselves look like we're Russians or Chinese or South Koreans or North Koreans or whoever we want to, right? And they got hacked. And that was released. Anything can be hacked. Records have been hacked to the military, out of the Pentagon, all the rest of this stuff. So uh, there is nothing secure about that. Number one, but it is a dangerous precedent because what we're seeing right now is full on criminalization, and that what they're releasing is not really just Trump's tax returns, but they're releasing a um, they're releasing a monster of. Re- incrimination and revenge that's going to be very dangerous in politics because believe me the republicans are going to do it back when they've got the power they're going to come after people and so uh there's so much corruption there and they typically have just had this you know honor among thieves that they wouldn't expose the other guy's criminal stuff you know they have um (laughs) i always think of washington as that Looney tunes commercial, or you got, uh, uh, not commercial, but a cartoon where you got, uh, the, the, sheepdog and the coyote come in and they punch the clock and, you know, Hey, how you doing, Ralph? Oh, I'm doing okay. You know, and they both punch in <laughs> they're at each other's throat and then the, the bell rings and it's the end of the day and they go back and they uh, punch out, you know, you're going to go get a, a pizza. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go get a pizza, you know, that type of thing. And that's the way the Democrats and the Republicans are, they come after each other, but then they, they hold it back and they don't really come after each other, even though they know each other's crimes, they don't bring them out to light, and this is about to change. And so I expect that it's going to increase the political warfare to another level. Presidents are not required by law to release their tax returns. This has been something that's been done voluntarily in the past to demonstrate to the American public that they have nothing to hide. We might ask, if they've got nothing to hide, how did Obama and Pelosi become so wealthy? Uh, (laughs) we know how they operate. We know that the speeches and the honoraria that they get, especially after they leave office, are payoffs. We know that they're doing insider trading. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot of other stuff that's going on with this stuff as well. One of the reasons that you don't have people coming in from private life into this, and this is what's really dangerous about this precedent, it's going to discourage anybody who's actually done anything other than being a politician running for office. Because uh, if you've worked in the real world and you've got uh, a company and it's got a complicated tax return, this is going to weaponize that. These people, when they run for office, they will um, put in their time as some kind of a bureaucrat or politician who's on a salary, and they will take deferred compensation. So if they can move their way up the ladder, then that's when they get the payoff. But that gives them a very, very simple wage return, and they can uh, they have no problem showing that, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, I don't have all that much money. People are just, uh, you know, contributing to a political action committee on my behalf and but it's an advanced auction that they put in there. And so they can release those tax returns. This is going to discourage anybody who has been involved in business who's done anything, accomplished anything from getting in there because they know that everything that they've done is going to be uh, examined and twisted and made public. Ways and means Democrats are unleashing a dangerous new political weapon, says the New York Times, that reaches far beyond President Trump, that jeopardizes the privacy of every American. Well, that was actually not the New York Times. They're quoting Kevin Brady of Texas, the top Republican on the Ways and Means Committee. He said, going forward, partisans in Congress have nearly unlimited power to target political enemies by obtaining and making public their private tax returns to embarrass them and to destroy them. It's going to be recrimination and revenge escalating, as if Washington isn't already a uh, dirty enough place. This is going to make it far worse. Um. MJ Nichols. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. It's very kind. Uh, <laughs> no one does Mark Levin like David Knight. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Well, most people don't want to, uh, come after Mark Levin and make fun of him. That's <laughs> I imagine a lot of people could do a better impression than I do. They don't want to, it doesn't, uh, make me any friends in media to do that type of thing. I can tell you, but, uh, I don't care. <laughs> uh, Trump urges Congress to take three crucial actions to address the border crisis. Wow. Maybe this guy should be president. He knows all about how to fix the borders. Oh, wait. (laughs) Oh, wait, you had your chance, Donnie. You didn't do it then, did you? And he's pretending that he does. He's pretending that Title 42 protected the border. Look, it's not as bad as what Biden is pretending to do, or or, uh, planning to do, I should say. But as I pointed out yesterday, Title Forty Two was not about protecting the borders. Title Forty Two was really more about protecting the pandemic narrative, and um, uh, you know, it was. Uh, it, it did not stop people coming across the border illegally. It didn't stop drug trafficking. It didn't stop human trafficking. It didn't stop any of that stuff. We got thousands of people coming across all the time. Uh, but it's going to be worse when you remove it. Because when you remove it, they're not going to have any legal justification, presumably. I don't know why that's the case. But, you know, they're going to pretend they don't have any legal justification to send people back over to the other side, even if you can't catch them. And there's a lot of them that are not being caught. Why is that? The border's completely open. And he didn't build the wall. But the wall wasn't going to stop it anyway. Uh, you know, they just uh, like uh, Karen used to teach the kids prepositions. It's anywhere a mouse can go. You can go under the wall. You can go over the wall. You can go around the wall. You can, you know, all this type of, the, a mouse could get through there. And guess what? All these people who have a financial incentive, look, they can make a lot of money selling drugs. They can make a lot of money selling humans. And a lot of people for whom they don't want to do that, they can make a lot of money off the welfare system if they come. We've got a giant magnet with all these different things. And so, um, that's, what's drawing them through. And, and even if, even if you've got some kind of a barrier to something, If you suck hard enough, you're going to suck the people right through that wall (laughs) or over the wall, under the wall, around the wall. And we got a gigantic door there. That's about 1500 miles wide, uh, in this wall that Trump in his imagination put up. So, uh, he said, uh, this is what Trump said. He said, Biden is getting exactly what he always wanted. The termination of the most effective border security policy in modern history. What a joke with this porous border. He he wants to tell everybody, I had it fixed. I'd solve the problem. No. Uh, that's the way it's being represented. Uh, again, it was not to protect the border. It was to protect his COVID narrative. That's why he put together Title 42. Uh, so here's the three steps, he says, of what has to be done to protect the border. Because he knows. Uh, first, Trump called on Congress to include a total all uppercase, and all uppercase permanent ban and a federal spending bill on any president using taxpayer dollars to release illegal illegal aliens into the country. What have I been telling everybody? everybody says Trump didn't do it. Uh, the Republican, you know, it's these bad Democrat governors who are doing it. Trump didn't do it. I said he funded it. You get what you want when you fund it. And if you don't like it, you stop the funds to it. And that's what he's saying. I don't like illegal aliens coming across the border. So anybody, any president that uses taxpayer dollars to release these illegal aliens, well, we're going to have a federal spending bill to stop money to that president or something. I'm not really sure what he's proposing. How do you stop? How do you do a federal spending bill on any president using taxpayer dollars? You can block the, the funding for the release, I guess. Is that what he's saying? Uh, if somebody's doing something you don't like, you know, like they're telling uh, 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 tranny boys that you can't go in the girls' locker room and showers. Well, I don't like that. I'm going to cut your funding. What if you tell people, I'm going to destroy your business and I'm going to make you wear a mask? Well, I don't like that. I'm going to cut their funding. He didn't do that. He kept the funding going. So that was the first thing. And it just shows all the people who are excusing Trump throughout all this COVID stuff. As I said before, this is the other shooter drop from 9-11. They did Dark Winter. They had 9-11. The week after they had the anthrax attack, the week after that, they did the Model State Health Emergency Powers Act because they were going to run it through the states. They practiced doing that 20 years. We're going to run it through the states, and we're going to call it a federal emergency, and we're going to give them the cash to run it. That's the way the thing was designed to work. That's the way they practiced doing it for 20 years. But you don't have to even know that. You just have to know that if a president doesn't like what somebody's doing, they cut off the magic money spigot. Because that's the way they get everything done. They can just print up unlimited amounts of money. They're about to spend $1.7 trillion. Where'd they get it from? They just made it up. Uh, They just started printing it. Or as Jerome Powell, the Federal Reserve president, said, "Well, we." can't print that much, so we just create the credits on a computer, right? Secondly, Trump says, Congress needs to codify all Trump-era immigration policies into federal law. Make Title 42 permanent. Well, Title 42 is just about COVID and testing and things like that. So we're going to keep the border... um, shut down because of pandemic rules and maybe add to it vaccine rules like uh, Biden did at the border between the U S and Canada. Is that what Trump is saying? Is that how we control the border? We control the border by pandemic rules that block people from traveling because you know, we'll all die or we could block people from traveling because if you use energy, uh, fuel will all die from the planet dying. You know, um, that's, Right, that's the way they wanted to it. So finally, the former president, current presidential candidate, as they pointed out on Breitbart, urged Congress to establish, quote, criminal penalties for any senior official or political appointee who orders, aids, or abets the mass release of illegal aliens in the United States. What about DACA? Why didn't Trump get rid of DACA? It was not a law. It was an executive order from the previous president's attorney general saying, we're not going to enforce the law, which they'd sworn to do. And so I don't did, if you don't get rid of that, if you don't tell people you got to enforce the law, how is that? And if you go along with DACA, because you don't want to pay the political price of ending the program and you kick it over to the Supreme court, say, it's not my issue. I don't, I can't decide that, you know? that was Obama's executive order, and the Supreme Court has got to rule whether or not I can get rid of Obama's executive order. Is that not aiding and abetting? Is that not passively aiding and abetting? Matt Gates or Gates uh, is um, had some. I saw this. On some, this is actually the Hill reporting on it, and I saw some conservative news aggregator saying, oh, "Look at this, uh, Matt Gates goes." N- uh, uh, Goes off on Trump, you know. He's he's uh, he's gonna he's toast now. Oh, he criticized Trump. Uh, I'm not a Matt Gates fan, but uh, he does have this right. He uh, said when uh, and and this is what is happening with with Trump is lining up behind Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy has been kissing the ring every chance he gets of Trump, and so Trump is now responding. You know, he's my little yeah, you know, he's my guy. And, uh, so he says, um, Kevin has worked very hard and I think he deserves the shot. Does it matter what he thinks, what he's done in the past? I don't know. Anyway, uh, Matt Gates is with uh, the group of conservatives who would like to see a conservative speaker in the house instead of Kevin McCarthy. And so when he was asked about this, he said, well, uh, HR, human resources, was not always Trump's best thing. (laughs) Yeah. He doesn't do a great job of picking people in his administration to assist him. And he doesn't do a great job in terms of, um, picking candidates either. He's had a long history of people like Oz and Herschel and that babe that he tried to get put into Congress here in Tennessee, who had always been a Democrat until she got a job in the Trump white house. And, uh, you know, I, she had absolutely no, uh, integrity politically to be a Republican. Anyway, that's, that's the kind of thing that he's done. But so, uh, Matt Gaetz says, uh, so maybe we ought to have a choice come out of the house that represents the conservative center of our caucus. I'll be for Trump for president, but I will not follow him in supporting Kevin McCarthy for speaker. So, uh, that's where things stand there. It's been, um, uh, interesting to see how these things work out. Carrie Lake, one of uh, Trump's HR picks that I think was not very wise, but she has, um, she is probably, even though she didn't win the election, I think she's one of the more successful celebrity picks, the celebrity rhinos that, um, Trump has picked and make no mistake about it. Carrie Lake is a rhino. She has hitched her wagon to the election corruption stuff. And I'm sure she loves the fact that she lost in a close election because this is her ticket to ride. And she is going to ride this thing for everything it's worth. Uh, I'll just remind you, you know, if you think that she's a conservative, go back and look at her history. And uh, I didn't focus on her during the election because it's a, a state issue. Uh, you know people involved there, but <clears throat> she is a much more effective speaker than Trump is. But when it comes to her political positions and on issues, when it comes to her history, she's nothing more than Trump in a dress. But she's a lot more effective speaker and a much better debater and more confrontational. So she's going to be bombastic, she's going to be belligerent, uh, but she's portraying herself as a victim and a martyr. And she was right there with Trump when they had the big Mar-a-Lago LGBT festival right after uh, the uh, celebration at uh, Biden's White House. Uh, That's where she's coming from. Uh, She is hardcore left on social issues, on economic issues, the rest of the stuff. But she is all about being a victim of the kind of new corruption that was issued in by her mentor, Trump. We'll be right back.
4: listening to the
3: David Knight show right welcome back and uh, as uh, Eric Peters and I've been warning for a long time now we can all say I told you so it doesn't do me uh, any good to say this but we now see that uh, as they have been burdening the grid the electrical grid with everything all transportation must be powered off of the grid all heating of homes must be powered off the grid. And this isn't just Europe. This is happening in New York City. They have outlawed um, you know, the, uh, any additional heating that is not going to be electric in New York City. So we put everything, we centralize and control, centrally control all energy. And at the same time, they shut it all down. So this is happening now in Switzerland. They're planning to restrict the use of electric cars during this energy crisis. And. Uh, <laughs> They said, uh, some folks in the UK are getting hit with bills that exceed $10,000 a month. This is why businesses are shutting down. They've already had big factories that were built, that were manufacturing, you know, um, metals from raw materials and things like that. So we, we can't, that takes a lot of energy. Uh, we just can't compete with the Chinese now because you know, the Chinese are building cheap coal power plants. They don't have to clean up the air coming out of them. They don't have to be clean. They can build as many as they want. It can be as dirty as they want, which makes it cheap. It's expensive to clean. It can be done. It costs money. But the Chinese are not burdened with these regulations, neither are the Indians. And so you've got the two most populous countries on earth under the terms of the Paris Climate Treaty can build as many of these factories as they want. And they don't have to clean anything up. He says, um, this is coming out of, of, um, uh, this is from Daisy Luther. She said, a lady I know who lives in the UK Told me that her smart meter uh, read that they are using the equivalent of $58.78 a, a day in power. And they're only heating their living room and using lights. And it isn't full on winter yet. Well, we're going to get full on winter this next week. I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of places that are colder than it is here. Even in Austin, where we're from, I mean, they're getting down into the low teens. Uh, we're supposed to, and maybe even single digits, of course, they don't know because we're three or four days out from this stuff and they, <laughs> they can't predict the weather that far in advance, but there's a general consensus that things are going to get really cold. And, uh, they're predicting like two degrees here, uh, as a low. So, uh, we'll wait and see what happens with it. Um, the UK telegraph is talking about, uh, what the Swiss are Saying they have different emergency tiers, so they have uh, different restrictions depending on which emergency tier they're in. We've had a COVID emergency, a pandemic emergency. Now we are having a planet emergency, a climate emergency, because that's where this stuff is all coming from. So they so said the lowest level, you know, they're going to go, <laughs> in the words of uh, Kanye, uh, Defcon three on electric power usage here. Uh, The lowest level will see public buildings heated to no more than 20 degrees Celsius at 68 degrees Fahrenheit. People asked to limit their washing machines to 104 degrees Fahrenheit. I'll just give the temperatures in Fahrenheit. Uh, Under the next level, temperatures will be lowered to 66 degrees Fahrenheit. And streaming services will be asked to lower the resolution of videos from HD to standard quality. I mean, this is how they're going to micromanage it. Even to tell the streaming services, uh, you got to lower the resolution of the videos. If the situation worsens, shops will be asked to close two hours early and electric vehicles will be limited to essential journeys. Crisis measures could see hot water disabled and public bathrooms and the use of electric leaf blowers barred. Next, so uh, go blow the leaves off right now because They've already fallen, <laughs> so you can blow them into a stack right now before they outlaw that. Uh, next, escalators will be stopped. Going down, I hope. And outdoor Christmas lights will be turned off. Oh no! What will our neighbors do? I don't. <laughs> they got this massive display of uh, uh They must have uh, fifty Santa Clauses and everything else that you can buy out in the, the yard. It's actually kind. Of, I'm not criticizing it. We enjoy seeing it. But uh, uh, they might have to turn the lights off if we get in a situation like this. If Biden and the Democrats continue down this path, it's going to go dark. Um, Cryptocurrency mining will then be banned. And I told you this is coming. They're complaining all the time about the massive amounts of use from cryptocurrency mining because it's proof of work. And uh, these people will just uh, say, well, you know, we don't want to have proof of work. We have the authority. We, we tell you, you know, it's proof of authority. I'm telling you this is an official dollar and I'm telling you what it's worth and that's it. And we don't have to mine anything. So cryptocurrency mining would be banned if supplies keep dropping, along with swimming pools closed. Uh, I guess this would be indoor swimming pools in Switzerland at this time of year. And lights in sports stadiums turned off. And the most extreme shortages – Sports matches, concerts, and theater performances will be canceled. This is starting to look exactly like our COVID lockdowns, the climate lockdowns. That's exactly what we're looking at. And of course, it's already been discussed, you know, this happening in California and other places. They go straight from you gotta buy an electric car to uh you better not charge it. You better not charge. You better, you better anyway, uh, Toyota has Eric was pointing out, and I've pointed out in the past as well. We pointed out when I talked to him uh, yesterday, he said, yeah, Toyota is pushing back against this. Look, Toyota wants to sell cars for whatever reason. I don't know. I mean, you know, GM and Ford, they don't care about selling cars anymore. <laughs> Stellantis, which used to be Chrysler, they don't care about selling. They want to rent and not just lease a car to you. They want to rent it to you by the ride. They want to be mobility companies and they want to do everything the government says. Yeah, we're your guy. Whatever you say, Ralphie, I'll do it. Uh, Just tell me, and um, you give me the concession, okay? You remember this? I supported you when we did this, so I get to be one of the two or three companies that are going to be renting transportation by the ride. We'll have the golf cart concession so that you can go, um, you know, travel to your heart's content within this little fifteen-minute area and a city. So, Toyota chief says the silent majority has doubts about pursuing only electric vehicles. Good for him. You know, that's the interesting thing about it. They keep coming back and they say, oh, you want an electric, uh, you want a no-emission vehicle? We can do that. We can do that. We can, make, um, we, we can make an electric vehicle, and we don't have to have a battery. We, we can do it with some kind of a fuel that we fill up or something. No, no, no. You will charge. You'll have electric car and it will charge off the grid. That's all we care about. We don't care about the emissions. We don't care if it's electrical. We don't want you, we don't want to work out the issues of any alternative system or any additional issues in terms of infrastructure. Uh, we don't want anything other than a system that's going to have everybody tied to us on a centrally controlled grid that we possess. They've shut down all these other things. So, you know, uh, You've seen it with the technological developments first in, um, you know, in Germany. They said, "Oh, you're worried about emissions? Well, we can we can clean up the diesel fuel. Uh, we can make a diesel engine that gets 100 miles per hour." And that's when Volkswagen got hit with four billion dollars in terms of fine. They got the message real quick. They pulled all the diesel cars off, and it said, "We're going to lead in electric vehicles now." They got the message. You either do what we say, or we're going to shut you down. Uh, we don't want you coming up with diesel stuff. We don't want, you know, Mazda comes out and says, uh, well, okay, we got a new way that we can uh, do in- internal combustion engines. We can take a gas engine and we can start it up like a typical gas engine, but then we can switch over to a mode where it operates via compression, like a like a diesel engine, and we can actually get more power and better gas mileage from that. It's like, shut up. You're going to shut these things down. You're going to go battery electric, or you're not going to manufacture anything. Well. The uh, president of Toyota said that he is among the auto industry's silent majority. They know, these are engineers, they know there's other ways to do this. They need to speak out, not just about, well, you know, there's another way that we could do this. They need to say, and this is why these people don't want you to do it another way. Because it's about control. He said there's a silent majority that questions whether electric vehicles should be pursued exclusively. Comments that reflect a glowing growing uneasiness about how quickly car companies can transition. It's never been in the interest of these people to have a transition to an alternative way of doing this. From the very beginning, when you look at the very first Earth Day, and I've played the clips for you. They're out there screaming, ban all cars, ban all cars. I've heard this my entire life. I know that's the agenda. They want to kill you know, 90-plus percent of the people, or probably more than 90%. They want to kill most of us depopulation and banning the cars and all the rest of this stuff. He said, automakers are making big, big bets on fully electric vehicles. Uh, this, um, this article says investments that have been bolstered by robust demand for the limited number of models that are now available. Still challenges are mounting, particularly in securing parts and raw materials for batteries. They're not idiots. I mean, they're out there. They're trying to build this stuff. It's like, well, where are we going to get more lithium? Where are we going to get more nickel? Where are we going to get more of this? And even as they don't have enough, you know, they say, well, if if we want to continue to sell cars and they're all going to have these batteries in them, that means we're going to need to have X amount of these raw materials. We're not anywhere close to that. I mean, we need several orders of magnitude more of this raw material, but what do they do? Even though that doesn't exist, that's not good enough. Oh no, we're going to. Shut down the typically the number one or two or three supplier in the world, Russia. We're going to embargo. Russia's got the largest landmass of any country, and so they have tremendous mineral resources. So we're going to embargo all of that in a sanction, and you're not going to get access to any of that stuff. So we're going to take all that off the board. Um, so uh, could Tesla's charger become the U.S. standard for EV charging? The Wall Street Journal looks at this and says, well, you know, people who are involved in the auto industry are largely a silent majority, he said, in Thailand. He said that silent majority is wondering whether or not EVs are really okay to have as a single option. But they think it's the trend, so they can't speak out loudly. Here's the issue. Whenever you see mandates and threats that you're going to do things one way, You know, this is the government, you know, that's political, you know, that there's no reality. There's no medical reason for us to only have the vaccine and remdesivir and you will not have any other treatment. You will do exactly. We got one way to treat this stuff. You're going to put people on ventilators. You're going to give them remdesivir. You're going to give them vaccines when we got those available. Anybody that does anything else, you're going to be purged. You're going to be outed as a liar, a criminal, a fraud, a dangerous person who's killing people. We're going to take you out of your profession. We're going to do all these things to you. This is the whole, it's the same game plan. And they're not going to defeat it if they don't call it out for what it is. You know, he says, well, we got a silent majority. Well, the majority needs to speak up and the majority knows this isn't going to work. And they needed to do more than just say it's not going to work. They need to point out that the emperor has no clothes, but he's got an agenda. This is naked tyranny, and we need to point out what the end game is here. So um, all the major rivalries, rivalries are jumping down the EV road, but again, Toyota's trying to hedge their bets because I guess they're looking at this and saying, well, you know, the politicians are taking everybody down this path, but it can't possibly work. And then what happens if we're the only game in town that has automobiles? You know, the Japanese government is not nearly as suicidal as a lot of these other governments. Uh, They do like Japan Incorporated. Uh, They would like to get more power. So they're going to kind of help them in this. The Mises Institute has an article, forget oil, now they're coming for the cows. Well, I don't want to forget oil either, because if we don't have oil, we're not going to be able to get the cows to market. We're not going to, you know, the cows are either meat or they're dairy. They want to get rid of both meat and dairy. I've read you the, the C40 group. It's not 40 cities, but it's uh, just under 100 cities. And uh, their wish is that nobody has any meat, nobody has any dairy, that you're going to get uh, three articles of clothing that you can buy per year. Uh, you will have one trip on an airplane every three years, and that trip will be under 1,000 miles, and on and on. No private automobiles, no nothing. It's all tied together. If you don't have oil, you're not going to have the fertilizer for the feed. You're not going to be able to get the product to market, any of that stuff. It is all tied together. But it is important for people to understand that they're coming for food. You know, they have demonized energy by calling it carbon. Well, nobody likes carbon. It's sooty. It's dirty. It sounds dirty. Oil is, feels dirty. It can be a real environmental issue if it's a spill and that type of thing. But, uh, you make it about the cows and they start to pay attention. And so this is an article from the Mises Institute going into detail about, uh, the, the efforts to shut all this down, especially in the Netherlands, they're taking the lead on all of this. Uh, This article from Daily Skeptic How billionaires fill the media with climate fear and panic. And that's exactly it. It's coming from the billionaires. They're the ones who are running this. They're the ones who are telling us you're going to eat bugs, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. They're the ones who are funding the agenda at the UN and the U and the uh, World Economic Forum. They merged, they had an agreement to work together. They've got the same agenda. This goes back to 2015. The UN had been talking about their UN Agenda 21. And 2015, they gave it a specific date. It was no longer sometime in the 21st century. It was going to be accomplished by 2030. They're going to use smart cities and the rest of the stuff. The World Economic Forum did their videos at that time talking about the Great Reset, talking about how you're not going to have anything and you'll be happier when we take everything from you. The two of them are working together. The UN creates this ground swell and brings the the global politicians together to feed them the agenda in the same way that the federal government put out the Model State Health Emergency Powers Act. We've seen this type of thing done over and over again. The Republicans, for example, have an organization called the American Legislative Exchange Council, ALEC. And what they will do is they'll have these retreats, for, and the Democrats do the same thing, But I'm just talking, I know about this one specifically uh, because hanging around with conservatives and Republicans, I know more about this. So they will have um, these retreats, like a kind of a vacation. The state legislators will go to this American Legislative Exchange Council. They will give them sample legislation. Put the name of your state at the top. Sign your name at the bottom and turn in your homework, and we will help you with the rest of this to get this thing through. We'll help you to sell it and all rest. And it'll be your legislation. And not only that, but we'll further your career. These are the kind of people who put Tom Tillis on the fast track in North Carolina. Uh, that's how I found out about the American Legislative Exchange Council. I've been watching it since. But, um, and, you know, just go back and look at his history at the state level, at the federal level. But that's the way this thing is done. That's the way when they ran out this, you know, legislation, Uh, to, to run the pandemic 20 years ago, the federal government with the model state health emergency powers act, it was a model model legislation. They gave to them and said, here, pass this in your state. We're going to do something with it. You know, in a while, they didn't say we're going to do something with it. They said, you need to pass this because you know, nine 11 and we never know what terrorists are going to do. There could be some kind of a biological attack. So you need to be prepared. And so they sent them out this model legislation. That's what the UN does. The UN puts together this thing and and kind of builds it. The World Economic Forum, that's the executive branch of this monster, of Hydra. And and so they have the energy, and they bring in, since they don't have global governance yet, they don't have a way to collect a global tax, a carbon tax or something like that. So they bring in the billionaires. And the billionaires help them to sell the fear. This is the program. And, uh, you know, you can become the world's richest man if you participate in that program, like, uh, Elon Musk did. So, um, yeah, it's, it's all about how they can rig the public opinion. I'm about out of time. So I'm going to stop here with the, the environment and I want to get into a couple of things about the pandemic. So we're gonna take a quick break and, uh, we will be right back. Stay with us. This is The David Night Show. I uh, just want to say I had uh, a longtime time listener. I won't mention who it is. I don't want to get him in trouble. He works in uh, EMS. And he sent me some documents that he saw. He said, maybe this is nothing. I just find the timing to be interesting. He said, we were given this. And he sends me pictures of the front and back of the handout. With extensive information on pediatric and neonatal resuscitation. He said it's basically a Cliff Notes pocket guide for EMS providers for children and newborns, cardiac arrest, tachycardia, bradycardia, and a small paragraph including trauma. Normally, this wouldn't pique my interest, but this happens to coincide with the current push to get children vaccinated. Just an interesting thing, is all I'm saying. Yeah, isn't it? Isn't it interesting that now it's become a thing? And it's a normal thing, you know, we got, we've got we shown you commercials produced by a, a New York hospital saying, um, you know, uh, we, we need to do EKGs for kids now. It needs to be a standard thing. We've seen this in uh, school jurisdictions. Well, you're going to have to get an EKG before you can participate in sports. Really? When did that become a thing? After the vaccines. Judicial Watch has um, come out. They've, they've done a, a FOIA request from... HHS regarding Moderna data that was submitted to the FDA. And of course, they ignored the requests. They made the request 18 months ago and um, in June of 2021. And they just shut them down without any releasing any information. So then they sued them in September of 2021. And so here we are now, well, 18 months after they asked, 15 months after the lawsuit's been fought and they finally get some records back and they said the FDA records show a significant number of mRNA test rats are born with skeletal deformation. Oh, wow. Well, that's uh, no problem, is it? one <laughs> the Trump shots. Oh, don't say that. The shots are evil. Trump's not. Variations in skeletal examination included statistically significant increases in the number of rats with one or more wavy ribs and one or more rib nodules. Wavy ribs appeared in six fetuses, four litters, with a fetal prevalence of 4% and a litter prevalence of 18%. Whether or not a substance-induced increase in the incidence of fetal skeletal variation should be taken into account for human risk assessment, says Judicial Watch. Uh, this is a long-standing controversial issue. It has been argued that chemically produce, chemical produced chemical-produced increases and variations are not to be considered for risk assessment because they're unlikely to adversely affect survival or health. Uh, but there's a counter-argument that not even that even not being overtly adverse and conveying no apparent selective disadvantage, a treatment-induced increase and the occurrence of variations means the chemical agent has the potential to perturb skeletal development. What else is it perturbing? Well, we don't know because we didn't want to do any studies, right? And so Judicial Watch says, just understand there were no metabolism studies done with the, I'll just call them the Trump shots. No metabolism studies were done with the Trump shots. No excretion studies. With the Trump shots. no PK, that is a pharmacokinetic studies with the Trump shots. No other PK studies with the Trump shots performed. No one could have done it faster than me. <laughs> I am the uh, father of the vaccine. In October, you know, the, here's the problem for Trump moving forward, right? Success has many fathers. Failure is an orphan. In October 2020, Judicial Watch got FDA records that detailed pressure for COVID-19 vaccine booster approval and use. You notice how they avoid saying it was Trump? Who pressured them? Who pressured them? Tom Fitton, he doesn't want to kill his organization by pointing the finger at Trump. Yeah, they were pressured to approve this stuff. It was Trump who threatened to fire them. We've now had a top doctor in New Zealand. I'm sorry, not New Zealand, Australia. Uh, She was formerly president of the Australian Medical Association. And she was injured by a vaccine. And so she's speaking out about this. She said it was a devastating impact. And she said this is a cover up by medical regulators. Good for her. And here's the other thing she said that both she and her wife were seriously harmed by the vaccines. So she has LGBT credentials. She was president of the Australian Medical Association, and she has LGBT credentials besides medical credentials. This is going to be pretty devastating for them. Uh, She further, this Dr. Karen Phelps, she further contends that the true rate of adverse events is much higher than the medical establishment is reporting. Uh, She says, this is an issue that I have witnessed firsthand with my wife who suffered a severe neurological reaction to her first Pfizer vaccine within minutes, including burning face and gums, uh, numb hands and feet while under observation by myself and another doctor and a registered nurse at the time of immunization. She continues to, quote, observe the devastating effects a year and a half later with the addition of fatigue and additional neurological symptoms, including nerve pains, altered sense of smell, visual disturbance, and musculoskeletal inflation. All this stuff about long COVID, you understand what it is? It's long vaccine. That's what it is. Uh, Phelps said, the diagnosis and causation has been confirmed by several specialists who have told me that they've seen a lot of patients in a similar situation. I interviewed an orthopedic surgeon who can no longer work because he can't stop his hands from shaking reactions to this vaccine. And he went from one doctor to another, and uh, they were like, oh, "I don't, no, I'm not, I'm not touching this. I'm not talking about." It. Finally, he found a doctor to help him, and uh, he said, "Look, I'll help you, but we're not going to talk about the vaccine." They're afraid; they're not practicing medicine anymore. This is a a communist tyranny, where you have to parrot whatever the authoritarian government tells you, or you're kicked out on the street. It's the same thing that Solzhenitsyn confronted. He says, yes, I understand. You know, if you confront these people, they'll take away your job. They'll kick you out on the street. But you can't believe this stuff. You can't lie to yourself. You can't do what uh, Orwell pointed out, you know, the, the double think. So she said um, to her, uh, her wife had asked her to include her story to raise awareness for others. She said vaccine injury is, what, is a subject that few medical professionals want to talk about. A top British orthopedic surgeon has also voiced his support uh, for the people who have come out on this. He says, uh, history does not look kindly on those whose only defense is to say, we just following the orders. He said the tide is turning you better make sure you're on the right side of history. Well, that's absolutely right. All right. Well, that's it for today's show. And, uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, as he pointed out the diagnosis, the causation was confirmed by specialist colleagues. Uh, In my case, I said the injury resulted in intermittent, intermittent fevers, cardiovascular implications, including breathlessness, Inappropriate sinus tachycardia, blood pressure fluctuations, all the rest of this—that's what the uh, the doctor who was talking about how it was affecting her wife. That's what she said. Uh, she was injured from both the first and the second one. Thank you for joining us.